Hi, this is Mike Mendez uh, from Tales of Halloween, and you're listening to Without Your Head. of decapitation without your head i'm nasty neil and i'm joined by hank braxton the man responsible for snake out of compton which is a insane movie it's good to have you here i can't claim full responsibility but thanks <laughs> all right all right fair enough fair enough there there are other accomplices yeah and i'm not talking unless i get a good plea deal <laughs> So where did the who who had the idea? Where did the idea for Snake Out of Compton come from? I assume just the um, guy the name know. came first. Yeah, I think that uh, just you know putting this out there right off the bat, I did not come up with a title or concept. Uh, uh-huh. I you know the 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 gentleman, the executive producers who uh, distributed the film or found distribution for it. You know they probably came up with it, you know, in a bar or something. Thought it was a hilarious title, and I agree, it's a great title. Uh, and you know, the script just landed in my lap at the right time when I was looking for a project and, uh, you know, they allowed us to kind of rewrite it and tailor it to our style, which is a bit, uh, probably goofier than was originally intended. And, uh, that's where it went. That's weird to think that your snake out of Compton would have been like, a, I'd say a more serious movie. Cause you said it was goofier, but I assume it wasn't like a totally serious, uh, horror film. No, I mean, when we, yeah, when it first came to us, it was very, it was very heavy in uh, parodies, and you know, like kind of like okay. one of those. Remember those old like epic movie or, or right, uh, what was it, movie, movie, et cetera. And they would just, yeah. and then they would just, well, scary movie, yes, 
have a lot of references, but I actually thought Scary Movie was pretty funny. Of course, I was 20, so you know maybe that had something to do with it. But, <laughs> you know, when they were for a while there, I feel like every year Hollywood, you know, they come out with like an epic movie or, or a date movie. You know, there was a bunch of them, and they would just like cram as many references from recent movies in there as possible. And uh-huh. the original script for Snake Out of Compton was very much that. It was like every... It was like every like urban film that was out, you know, be it Training Day or Menace to Society or any of them, they they would cram some sort of reference in it. And as we were rewriting it, it just kind of took a life of its own, and we felt like the characters were goofy and fun enough that we didn't really need all the references, even though a couple have survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think that those movies don't age well either, if it's like so much like uh you know uh, pop culture at the time yeah of course uh and that's why you know snake out of Compton is definitely engineered to endure the test of time it'll it'll certainly be a classic right. 20 it's, years it's from god now. it's the god they'll be teaching it in film theory in U- usc and probably the library of congress uh-huh, uh-huh. no i i do want to because it seems like sci- i want to call it a sci-fi movie but it's like in in that you know, same kind of idea that those kind of movies have become like their own genre. I think. Uh, oh, like, like, like the sci- sci-fi channel. You're yeah, referring yeah, to the, uh, right. right. Uh, what do we call like these? The, big... the, the, like the, the mashup mockbuster. Right. Right. Well, this so isn't shark, Sharknado, so et cetera. Yeah. Right. It's kind of in that realm. It's uh, the snake's not mixed with anything. It's not like a, a snake uh, avalanche or snake avalanche or something. But uh, but it's a kind of a that could be the sequel. I don't know. <laughs> but I well, I like the ideas for the sequel. Oh really? I I, I was asked that later. But uh, so you, there are plans for a sequel or at least ideas for a sequel. Well, I mean, look, it's like with any movie, it's got to. It's got to make a certain amount of money and, and justify that. You know, they got to be like, oh, we can make more money if we put out a, a sequel. And, you know, the, the whole cast and crew and I would love to do another one. You know, we had a really good time making this one. And uh, we'd like to make a second one that's just even way crazier than this one. Uh, and then if we ever get to a third one, it would be even more batshit. So, uh, but, you know, it's got, it's, it's got to... It's got to do really well first, and, and you know you just yeah. never know what's going to do well. It's it all depends on the audiences and what they want at the time, and you just can't you can't put your finger on the pulse of a uh, movie watchers, you know, a year ahead of time. Because if you could, everyone would be cranking out hits. Sure, sure. So where can people get where or when can people get Snake Out of Compton, <clears throat> and where will they be able to get it? Well, it's uh, it's. Street date is October 23rd. Uh, you can get a DVD, which is cool. It would have been cooler if they kept all our special features, but a uh, number of rights issues and things kind of kept mm. some of those off. We, had a, we actually had a really great behind-the-scenes documentary. Um, we'll probably just put up on YouTube. Um, but other than DVD, you'll be able to get it on, you know, the usual suspects, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Voodoo, etc., I like the uh, well. I like a lot of the music in the movie, but it opens up with almost like an NWA-esque uh, theme song to, to open up, and and it all culminates in a big uh, rap battle. So, uh, how hands on are you in the music in the movie? Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, I was hands on in in all the selection of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, serving as not just like the writer and director, but also the editor. Uh, of course, I'm going to be very involved in that. And we didn't have a music producer, so I had to handle all that. But as far as the, the rap songs and the, the original songs, um, those were all written by Tim, Tim Johnson, who was uh, one of the writers. Uh, and he's always just been a musical guy. And, uh, you know, the the whole movie is very much in his vibe, which is just like he's this really goofy but heartfelt guy. You know, there's a lot of charm to what he did, even though it's really silly, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, the, yeah. so like the rap music, I feel like for the most part, isn't NWAS at all. It's <laughs> this weird, like goofy, like out of time. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's very strange. It's very funky. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, the whole yeah. film, we kind of went for like an early 90s, like G-Funk uh feeling to the uh mm-hmm. to the hip-hop ensemble mm-hmm. no uh do you yourself uh, have you ever been to compton do you have any like a uh, street cred or anything oh yeah i mean i wouldn't say i have street cred at all i mean uh, <laughs> i grew up in western colorado uh uh-huh. on a farm so no um i you know i did live in los angeles for 12 years uh, okay. and we did film part of the film in compton and we filmed it all over los angeles actually uh Inglewood, Hawthorne, Canoga Park, Burbank, like really just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm from the uh, mean streets of, of Cape East Cod. LA. So. Mm-hmm. The, the mean streets of what? Cape Cod. Oh, yeah, it's a rough spot, man. It is. All <laughs> oh, lobster traps. But yeah, it's, uh, it's but has, so, where, so where were some of the places you filmed uh, outside of LA? Or was it all um, filmed in LA? It was all in L.A. I don't think there was there was nothing we filmed outside of it. Yeah. Uh, East how about, L.A. Where did? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, where did Where did uh, Verkel come from? Well, you know, even the name sounds very similar to Steve Verkel. That's obviously a <laughs> right, right, right. you know, it's kind of a nod to that. You know, uh, we we put a lot of like just silly little nods and homages to things in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know, uh, serious question: When you are filming in in uh, different locations, did you run into any problems? Um, gosh, I mean, not I would not really, other than just short on time. You know, um, I, I I guess I could backtrack, and I will say, uh, we filmed, we definitely filmed in some sketchy areas of LA, including some uh, freeway underpasses uh, where there were a lot of uh, a lot of uh, homeless folks and, you know, uh, that, that can get a little dicey. Cause I mean, with those poor people, you just like, you don't, I mean, you don't know what you're getting um, mm-hmm. with someone that's like, you know, living on the street and desperate. And it's like, when there's a lot of them just kind of like starting to swarm your set, it can get a little nerve wracking. Uh, Cause like I said, you just don't, you don't know what people are going to do in general. Yeah. Uh, I, I like I like the dialogue in the movie. There's a lot of weird lines like uh, "Don't be a wax scrote, I think was one of them. But uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's all. Yeah. Again, I I felt like the mantra on set was always uh, if it's not stupid, it's not funny. Uh, kind of uh-huh. thing. Like uh, like you just you're not you know we can't take you can't make a movie called Snake Out of Compton and and treat it like Citizen Kane when you're making it. It's, we 
always tried to push the envelope and just make things as silly and weird as possible. And to that end, um, since we weren't making a historical, you know, uh, drama like mm-hmm. straight out of Compton, uh, we didn't want to try to emulate that either. And rather than try to pick, you know, you know, street language and, and uh, jargon and, and other things that like fit the time, we thought it'd be more fun to kind of make up our own and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just kind of see where it goes from there. So like the slang in this film is all just weird original ideas for the most part. Yeah. I dug it. That's uh, uh, I, I think it totally works well, in the good. movie. It made me laugh. I think uh, I think you're our kind of audience because I, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's just it's totally love it or hate it type of film. You're either going to get it and, and it's your cup of tea, or you are going to think it's trash. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of that, like, uh, have you show? Did you show it at like any festivals or have any screenings for it? We haven't yet. We're kind of. We always kind of like just wait until it comes out and then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'd like to take it around to, you know, some, some venues and things and watch it with some audiences. That's always fun. But, but uh, no, sadly we didn't get into Cannes or Sundance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you were robbed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) and it really hurt our Academy Award chances. Uh Uh-huh. I was I was happy to see a Mike Mendez cameo, a uh, former guest on the show. Uh, do you, oh, do you know great. Mike at and all? It's like he's. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Mike and I uh, we've worked on a lot of stuff for for years, and uh, I would call him definitely a good friend. He's a, he's a, and he's a really fun guy. He's he's always willing to go help out pretty much anybody on uh, you know just about any set, any of his friends in L.A. And mm-hmm. you know that kind of happens a lot. Like you, you get a lot of people going around kind of just, you know, can I move the dolly for you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we just thought it'd be fun to get some cameos from some of our friends in here. Mm-hmm. You did mention you, you grew up on a farm. So how did you go from, uh, from a farm kid to uh, making movies in, in Hollywood? Well, well I just, I just kind of, uh, you know, uh, as most artists, you kind of like find a, a a medium that you fall in love with at some point in your adolescence or teen years for the most part. Now that's not to say to anyone listening that like, if you're in your fifties and you haven't discovered something yet, you can't, I mean, you can reinvent yourself anytime, but uh, I started making films on VHS uh, when I was a kid. And then by the time I was in high school, uh, we pretty much made them for like every project that was due, be it a book report or whatever. It's like, we're going to make a movie out of the book, you know? And so we made just, just silly crap. And, uh, that just followed me around. Even when, uh, when I joined the army, I ended up making movies in the army. And I think when I was about 22, it kind of dawned on me. I was like, maybe I can make money doing this. Like I'd never considered that possibility before. So, uh, went to film school for a little while and then took a job offer in LA and ended up out there doing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of TV for the most part, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of reality TV, sports documentaries and things like that, but always doing films and things with friends on the side. Mm-hmm. Well, what, this has come up a lot. Uh, last, the last month I did uh, indie invasion. So there's a lot of independent uh, directors on, what are your thoughts on uh, film school? Cause it seems, uh, uh some people well, say it's like a waste of money and, 
I mean, you know, I can't tell everyone what's right for them, obviously. Um, I enjoyed film school for the most part, uh, mostly because, you know, look, I, you go and you always think you know everything, especially when you're a kid. And, and I mean, you're going to learn some stuff depending on the film school. But more importantly, you're going to come out of there with some relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, just, it's sad to say, but if you want to be like, uh, you know, high up in the film and television industry in LA, then you need to go to like one of the main film schools, like primarily like USC or UCLA. Like it just, it just is what it is. It's just, it's the age old, uh, you know, club, you know, it doesn't change. Like the people that get into the club get the higher stuff. That's just typically how it works. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what kind of like movies were you into before you got into to making them? Um, Probably, you know, the same. I mean, I grew up on the classics, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Predator, Terminator, Aliens, Evil Dead, uh, you know, Army of Darkness. I liked the weird stuff like Pumpkinhead. Uh, uh, you know, as a kid of the, you know, child of the 80s, renting mm-hmm. movies at the VHS store, the horror section, I, you know, seen pretty much everything in it. Uh, because they had the coolest, I don't know, it was just awesome. You know, when you're a kid in the 80s, sure. you watch horror films. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, there's just something fun about it and something, like, fantastic. Yeah. And even though there were tons of great dramas and comedies and, and, and other things, I just, you know, wasn't into that as a kid. I liked the fantastic. It was sci-fi or horror for the most part. Mm-hmm. So uh, what kind of movies were you making when you started uh, doing uh, movies on VHS tape? I've gone back and forth. Um, I started trying to make serious horror films, um, but I kind of discovered a a penchant for comedy. I don't know if I'm that funny, but I think so. And I just really like making people laugh. Uh, Like that's more enjoyable to me than scaring people, uh, even though I also love to do that. and so I've always kind of gone back and forth. It's always been, it's either horror or comedy. So basically the kind of stuff I, I grew up loving. Mm-hmm. Do you still have that stuff? Do you ever want to uh, put it oh, out? Yeah, like, anywhere course, yeah. watch? Uh, I don't know if I would ever put some of that stuff out. Some of that stuff was a little, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Uh, maybe not as, uh, maybe insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, you're just a dumb kid. You just make sure. fun of, like, whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's a different time now. So, if it's. I mean, it really it. is. You know, like, pre 2007, I will say the humor world was just, it was just a little different. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I liked it as a golden AK in, in the movie. Uh, uh, do you keep any, like, any of those kind of props, like, in your house, get the golden AK up on the wall or anything? No. <laughs> No, I that was actually a rental, and I had just requested <laughs> of the uh, art department, which consisted of Amanda Hart. <laughs> like I wanted a gold-plated, uh, you know, machine gun yeah. or you know, yeah. rifle or whatever. I was hoping it'd be an AK, and then it was, and she found it, and that's great. The only thing, uh, the only thing in the movie I was able to keep was the uh, the ray that Burkle uses to grow the snake, and that's because I built that out of like $70 of the stuff I bought at the hardware store. <laughs> so she was a rental. So someone had a golden AK 47 to rent. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And where do you get it? Oh, in Los like Angeles, that? you can find all kinds of stuff. I think that was at ISS, which is just a rental shop. It's like a big warehouse to go in. And it's just full of props and things you can rent. 
right. So what is it? Was it functional? Because you've used it if you wanted to. No, no, it was plastic. All right, all right. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> That seems very very odd, though. I, I I'm from the other side of the country, so I, I don't know. But uh, the, the prop rental. <laughs> so I mean, you they got built, they have weird stuff in there. So you built like the uh, the the ray thing yourself. Yep, yep. It's just like I said, it's all stuff you can find at the hardware store. Yeah. Um, I wanted it to look functional. I mean, that's the important part of any prop is that it looks. It, you know, rather than just looking cool, it needs to look like it, it was functional. It was built to do mm-hmm. whatever it's doing. Um, mm-hmm. And since this was built by a science whiz kid in his in his upstairs bedroom, uh, it had to look very utilitarian. And you know, I took heavy inspiration from uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Ghostbusters. Yeah, I do like that. Basically, like the whole the whole movie. The, the the reason why it's a giant snake is because the guy was making something that would grow his penis really big. Well, that's kind of suggested, but yeah, <laughs> basically that was just something we threw in there. Like, why is this snake big? Because it's like, essentially we were given a, a, a movie title and a poster and they're like, write a script about this. <laughs> uh huh. So uh, how about um, who's the actor who plays the uh, like the Denzel character? Justin Thaney is that? Oh name? yeah, Justin. He's amazing. I, He's great. He is, and and, and honestly, I, I love the whole cast. I think everyone really does a good job, and there's yeah, huge yeah. standouts. And he, but he's got he's really got something special. Like, and it, it's so funny uh, because he, he he came into an audition and he did a great job, and you know we knew he'd be great for the part. Um, my wife, Ariel, who's actually in the film too, um, she cast the film. And so she brought him and she's like, she's like, Justin needs to play this part. And he came in and did a great job at the audition, but he was like, oh, it was terrible. I was so bad. And he, I guess he went home and he just watched tons of Denzel Washington impressions and tried to just take it <laughs> over the top. And he really did. He really like kind of turned it into his own character. And what I really love about what he does in the film is when I, I was discussing with him, like when we were like almost done shooting the movie, we had like two days left and, and I referred to his character as an antagonist and he stops. He's like, no, man, he's not a bad guy. He's a good guy. And I just thought, I'm like, okay, you know, you keep believing that because it's working. Uh, I think a good bad guy is someone who believes what he's doing is, uh, is right. Absolutely. I mean, that is, that is definitely true. They, they need, they believe what they're doing is, is that they're the hero. I mean, really, yeah. So how, how about the design of the snake and, and how long does it take to do all the, the CG work? Well, um, believe it or not, the CG was done by two guys in London. Um, their names were Paul and Steve, and um, they definitely, unfortunately, bit off more than they could chew uh, to a degree. I think they thought they were getting a lot less work than they ended up getting. Um, but I, I have to you know, tip my hat to them because they, they didn't let me down. They, they did probably three or four times more shots than they thought they were going to be doing. And, uh, they turned in a lot of stuff that, I, uh, I thought really came out well, you know, at that budget, I, I would expect the effects to be a lot worse off, but a lot of them look, you know, really solid. I mean, look, obviously it's not going to, it's still not going to win an Academy award, but, but they work to tell the story. And I really feel that the, uh, 
I don't know, the, the, the slipshod production of the nature of the entire production really fits and kind of like gives it its own charm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. So that's cool too. How, how do you get in contact with, uh, with two guys in London? I guess so. That's they, how the world works. Um, they had, they had worked with um, a couple of the producers, um, the Condulic brothers. They'd worked with them uh, on a previous film called Damn Sharks, um, and so they uh, put us in touch with them, and, and they they handled that really. The Condulics did, and they ended up putting me in touch with the guys. To you know, as a director, you're gonna have to go over everything with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I made not just storyboards, but there were animatics. Uh, that I'd made in the film that are just like crude 2D animations of what, what's supposed to happen. It's actually pretty hilarious. I think just releasing a film like that would have been great, but uh, you'll see that stuff. If you, uh, I'll send you a link to the, uh, the BTS documentary before it goes up online. Yeah, and uh, you can sweet. see those. They're really silly. It's, it's a lot of fun though. Yeah. I'd like to check that out. And there are some, uh, I guess, practical effects. Um, I don't want to give away towards the end of the movie but uh, i was a big fan of uh of that so who did like uh i love I practical and i would do uh-huh. i would do practical on everything oh julie hapney did the she did all the uh the gore and, and the, the practical snake effects so mm-hmm. yes there's some there's some stuff going on that we just it's really funny i know what you're talking about the uh and i, I think we could just talk about it that the uh somebody in the movie ended up kind of turning into a snake yeah. And it's because we, you know, Tim and I had discussed it and we just wanted, we wanted the movie to just keep getting more and more ridiculous rather than just sit with its one premise. Like the snake shows up and eats people, they thwart it, it comes back, et cetera. We wanted to just get weirder and weirder. And it was funny, even when we, we turned the script in and the EPs read it, they were like, what, where the hell did this come from? Like, why does this happen? And we were like, why not? It's funny. It's weird. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, Julie. Julie came in and she uh, she did all that, and I thought it looked really great. It was really fun. Yeah, I did that a lot. Uh, I liked the uh, the snake up the butt scene as well. It was good. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta have you just you, like I said, ridiculous. You gotta be ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, as much as I love the the CGI and the work they did too, I I, I really love practical and if if we'd had the time, I would have loved to do the snake as stop motion. That would have been sweet. I'm a huge fan of stop motion. So, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I actually worked on a, a movie called dead ant, um, before this one. And I tried to convince the director to do stop motion ants. Uh, I, I thought that would have been really awesome. And that's what I would have done if I directed uh-huh. the film and I, I hope that I get a chance to do a horror film one day where I can have a giant stop motion monster. Yeah. That needs to come back. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, yeah. I, I think mean, the last one I saw was, there was a movie. Yeah. There was a movie about a giant crab a couple of years ago and it was stop motion crab. And I was, I was very happy to watch it. I missed that. That sounds awesome. I think it's just called giant crab. Now I think about it, but yeah, it was pretty, that's awesome. great. Yeah, I love it. It's like we've hit this weird time in film where everything's ironic. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you said this. Is there a reason why the specials won't be on the uh, the DVD? Yeah, it's just the 
the distributor wanted us to have signed release forms for everyone in the documentary as, as well as the feature film. And since they weren't sure, they just opted to leave it out. Mm. I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. I say lame. I agree. Sounds very lame. But uh, so you'll be able to put some of that up on up on YouTube, you said. I mean, we should. I don't think anyone's going to, like, make us take it down or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there Again, still are some. Uh, it's a documentary. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, the, the movie, I thought the movie was itself. It's a oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. It's based, it's based, on, on, a, it's based on a story. real story. Uh-huh. Uh, there are some references to other movies in the movie. I like the Oh My God from. I assume that was from Troy. Yeah, you caught that? I love that. That's yeah. fun. Yeah, I kind of can't help but do that. I I always end up cramming in stuff like that it's like I, I sit there and say i'm trying to make something original but at the same time i there's always a, a, there's always a vibe of all those things like i guess i guess maybe every artist does that but i don't know i like doing it and that's just how it is yeah troll 2 is a great film <laughs> in my mind uh, anyway which one troll 2 troll 2 troll yeah. 2 is a blast Mm-hmm. Troll 2 is amazing, actually. I agree. And it's so funny to find out that it was directed by the same guy that directed my other favorite bad horror movie, which was Monster Dog. You know, I, I've uh, not seen huge, Monster Dog. That, I mean, that had a, that definitely had a huge impact on me uh, as a kid. I, it scared the crap out of me when I was like five or six. Uh, but by the time I had watched it again when I was like 17, it was like, oh, wow, I can't believe this... <laughs> scared me it's it's (laughs) it's an interesting film it's you know it's it's super low budget but there's a cool story behind it where the you know the writer director and his wife are italian and they had to make the movie in spain so the the whole crew speaks spanish and couldn't really communicate with the director and then it's starring alice cooper uh who you know speaks english of course yeah. Um, and I actually thought the story and everything was really cool. It could be a really awesome remake if somebody wanted to do it. Um, but, you know, they were victimized by budget and language barriers and things like that. And and that's that's what I try to, you know, tell everyone, everyone who out there who watches movies and like, oh, that movie's terrible or this or that. Um, it's really hard to make a good movie. Um, you need to, you typically either a lot of money or you need everything to go just right things that are, you know, out of your control that just need to fall into place, uh, or a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, co-host is here. Terrible Troy. How y'all doing tonight? Good, good. good. Pretty good. Hank Braxton is here with me from uh, Snake Out of Compton. Very nice. We are just talking about... Hello. Have you ever seen Monster Dog, Troy, with Alice Cooper? No, no, I have not. I haven't seen it either. Shame on me. Dude, you would love it. If you like Troll 2, you will love Monster Dog. Okay. And it opens with an awesome... Alice Cooper wrote a couple original songs for it, and uh, it opens with a music video of one, and it's pretty rad. I'm going to have to find this, then. Yeah, yeah. This this sounds awesome to me. So who did the poster for Snake Out of Compton? 
Yeah. Um, I actually don't know. You don't know. All I right. have no idea. I uh, I took the photos of all the characters at the bottom of the poster. That's all I know. Um, uh-huh. uh, typically, I like to do that. Just, you know, when we do wardrobe fittings, I like to get um, character poses of everybody so we can have them for that kind of thing. And uh, they ended up working out really great at the bottom. Yeah. So good job, so, me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you said that the... Uh... That like when you were when you got the movie, it just had the name and a poster. So was did they have the poster like partly done, and then you added the people? It was a different poster. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it was a different poster. It was just the snake with the googly eyes. Now there was a script that had been written by um, three different people, and we, I just felt it wasn't. It didn't speak to me. You know what I mean? Like as soon as I read it, I'm like, I can't direct this. Like this isn't this is not at all my cup of tea. Uh, and I requested that I could rewrite it and they were cool with it. And, you know, we kept, um, like character names and, uh, a couple locations. I mean, it wasn't all bad. We didn't want to like, I don't even want to say it was bad. It was just not my style. And I've directed somebody else's writing before. And I had a really miserable experience with it. And I, I just don't, I don't know if I'm the type of director that handles other people's writing. I, I kind of like to do my own thing. Uh-huh. So that was it. We, we, we completely rewrote it and made this totally silly thing. And, and that's kind of what you see on screen there. Mm-hmm. So when did the Lucha mask uh, get involved? Um, those get involved in pretty much everything I do. <laughs> like, I think you can, uh, the, I can, I have evidence of those in, in various films from the past. I just love them. I think they're cool. I agree. Do you have a favorite, uh, are you a fan of wrestling or you just like the Lucha masks? I just like the masks. Um, All right. I was a fan of wrestling in the late eighties. So when, uh, when like sting was in his prime and, and Randy uh-huh. Savage and all them, it was kind of fun. Yeah, Ooh, yeah, I'm a true man. But yeah, it was a good time. To yeah, be I mean, Randy Savage is Randy Savage is awesome forever. Oh yeah, yeah. My brother Troy here, he looks kind of like Macho Man. I was Macho Man Dude, for I'm Halloween last year. <laughs> that's right. Dude, that's a great yeah. costume. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it was perfect. All the kids at the school went nuts. They loved it. They don't oh, even yeah, know like who the hell Macho Man was, but they just thought the costume was cool. <laughs> Well, they're wrong, and then they're right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> have you ever uh, have you ever had any wrestlers in any of your movies? No, but I want to. Like, I would love to make a movie like They Live and have a Roddy Piper in it. Like, that yeah. would be like a dream come true. Um, <laughs> I I really I, I appreciate the uh, not to not to point out that there's a lot of acting involved, but I. I I really appreciate the theatrics and, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the, the display of it all. Like, you know, they're, they are thespians. Like, like they're really trying to sell it and entertain people. And I appreciate that. And I think that, uh, a lot of times that can translate really well to, you know, action and other genre films. I don't know about, you know, doing like some kind of sort of hardcore drama, but, I mean, action films, they live is a perfect example, like this crazy sci-fi story. It really works. And yeah, I've thought about doing that. I've thought about, you know, doing a film and casting like a UFC star. Like, I think that'd be really cool. Do you have any uh, UFC or wrestling uh, stars in mind? 
Because Piper's no longer with us, unfortunately, or Macho Man. Um, no, not at the moment. I mean, I think it'd be fun to, like, you know, we had a script years ago that we wrote called Zombie Source Rex that <laughs> uh, had a, like, a retiring uh, commando-type character in it, you know, like... Uh, so it would have been fun to go get like an eighties wrestler or, you know, early nineties guy and bring him back. And he's like, he's trying to retire, but he's got to, you know, fight this dinosaur that shits mm-hmm. out zombies. I mean, that was literally the plot. And I think that'd be cool. I mean, we, you know what? It's a really great script and it was really fun, um, but we just never gotten around to getting like funding for it, like the way we wanted to do it. And uh, somebody else made a movie called Z-Rex like a couple years ago. And so at that point, we we're just like, well, guess we're not making this. And then, I mean, we missed the boat, really. When we came up with that concept, it was like 2007 when it was before, it was before Sharknado. It was like when Sharktopus and, and things like that, you know, Piranaconda taken off. And, and my cousin Andy was like, "That's these things are so stupid. What's next? Zombiesaurus Rex? And we all kind of like looked at each other and nodded. We're like, yup. <laughs> Have you ever seen pro wrestlers versus zombies? No, but I like that title. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll I say this about the movie. There. Yeah. I'll say this about the movie. It's a good title. It's a good title. Pro wrestlers that was versus zombies. All it goes, huh? Yeah. yeah it's, I have it here for some reason. There's like a. I have like a three disc special edition. <laughs> I don't know why it warranted such a thing, but it's the Criterion Collection of of zombie. I mean, wrestlers versus zombies. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's a two disc set. <laughs> I mean, but, why uh, not? You can make you could you could absolutely make a movie out of that. <laughs> it has it has Piper in it. The acting is very strange because like Piper's like actually a very good actor, and he's like acting like he's in like a serious movie and then uh many of the other wrestlers are acting like wrestling and it's it's very bizarre i remember we went to see it it was actually at a at a festival at a at a convention and uh the three of us were in the back and just laughing and everyone else at the at the convention watching it were just like seems mad that we were laughing but uh, i don't know how you could watch it and be like deadly serious I think you can do whatever you want, you know. Like, yep. sure, if you get enjoyment out of something harmless like that, I I love it. Oh, we got enjoyment out of it. We were just laughing along with it, but uh, <laughs> the other people, no one else was laughing in, in the theater. I'm not sure Always why. Thought the great yeah, I know. Muda I know the feeling. Would be a good action hero. Who would be? Sorry, the great Muda. I think. Mm, KJ yeah, Muda would be pretty cool. Yeah, you know what movie has uh, an awesome bunch of cameos by wrestlers is mcgruber does it really i've never seen it oh man uh, mcgruber is one of my favorites and yes it has it has a lot of uh wrestler cameos you should check it out we'll check that out yeah you've given us two movies to look into now <laughs> i stand behind both of them oh, on the cover of this pro wrestlers versus zombies there's like a bloody hex on jim duggan like eating like a severed foot. How can you I love beat it. that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so I've never even heard of that film. That's seen. 
no, you got me. You got a movie I got to watch out. Yeah, I, I recommend it. I recommend it. It's good times. So, uh, where could people follow Snake Out of Compton? Like, uh, follow it online so they know when it's coming out. Yeah, I think there's a Twitter account for it, and there's a Facebook account. But, uh, like I said, October 23rd, it'll be out. I'm sure it'll be, you know, everywhere. It's going to be on the, on the cover of everything. It'll be like a presidential alert. Everyone's going to know about it. Exactly. I got one of those the other nice. day. Yeah. But yeah, just search, uh, just search, search Twitter for Snake Out of Compton, uh, Instagram. I think there's a Snake Out of Compton. I don't know what the handles are. Uh, yeah. I well, apologize, but if you search for it, it's going to pop up. The official. Yeah. I'll say after I asked that, I'm thinking well, it's kind of a stupid question because, like, if you look up Snake Out of Compton, if you Google that, you're probably not going to get like you know multiple websites and and facebook handles and be like you might get the old edgar Allan poe story snake out of con (laughs) yeah classic (laughs) very cool well i appreciate you coming on tonight it was fun to talk to you of course guys love to talk about uh all things silly and weird all right that's awesome yeah we'll do it again sometime next time you get something strange and unusual coming out do it again. Yep. Sounds great. And uh, hopefully I will. Right. <laughs> or you can just come back and we'll talk about whatever. It's fine. Sounds like a plan, guys. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thank From you. ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. <laughs> The tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming at night. Mostly, they're coming at night. Mostly, they're coming at night. Mostly, they're coming at night. Mostly. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming at night. All right, we're back here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm still nasty, Neil. And I remain terrible, Troy. Good man, good man. And uh, huge thanks to our guest, our first guest tonight, Hank Braxton. Snake mm-hmm. out of Compton. And then later tonight, uh, to kick off October, we have Tommy Lee Wallace, the director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. One of my favorites. I'm so looking forward to that because, like, uh, Halloween 3 and uh, and Stephen King it and he's done all kinds of stuff this guy yeah he's a man it's, um, uh, it's interesting because I think Halloween 3 for years people like they were like uh, like a cult movie because it was like you know it was, uh, people didn't like it but mm. I think now I think you're in the minority if you don't like it it seems like everyone loves it now it's true. I think once people revisited it, they were like, wow. You know, once it, they were over the initial shock that there's no Mike Myers in it. Mm-hmm. You know. I'm happy to see there's a lot of, like, uh, I, should, I should ask him about the merchandise. There's a lot of merchandise out there. You know, shirts. Ooh. Any silver shamrock masks? Uh, I think they did make them, actually. 
Awesome. I have a Silver Shamrock uh, patch. Nice. I know if you were a kid, would you be brave enough to wear your Silver Shamrock mask mm. on Halloween? Very good question. Very good question. And uh, it's pretty sweet here. We have uh, the return for Music of the Month of the Tomb of Nick Cage, who do our theme song. Oh, very nice. I love their stuff. Yeah. And so we have a few uh, new songs from their upcoming album, The Old Gun Massacre, Silver Shamrock. Nice. Sweet. And Grunge Road. Uh, Grunge Road, I'm sorry. Very nice. But uh, stay tuned, because uh, right after uh, the interview... Uh, with Tommy Lee Wallace, I am going to play the uh, Silver Shamrock song. Very nice. But then in the future, you'll be able to get the CD. Or you, you gotta wait. Yeah, I'm probably living the past with CDs, but or the uh, you know you can get the digital version. Ooh, ooh! Sure, these things work. Those All crazy right. kids and their digitized stuff. Exactly. So we did go see. Um, the house with the clock in its walls. There we go. The house with the clock in the wall. Clocks in the walls. And uh, I thought this was a fun movie. I enjoyed it a lot. I really did. I hadn't read the book for a million years, so I wasn't like, I didn't remember as much about the story as I had thought. Right. But I, I really enjoyed it. I thought Jack Black was great and Kate Blanchett. Yeah, it was a great cast. It was a very fun movie. Yep. Um, it might be the only movie by uh, by that guy that I like. Oh, by Eli Roth, yeah. Yeah, I'm, not, yep. I'm normally not a I fan of I was so player. shocked that it was by him. Yeah. It's fun times. So and, if you're uh, looking for one you can take the kids to or something, it's true. the one. Yep. And uh, so tomorrow, Troy, I know it's, you're not looking forward to it, but you are a big Marvel fan. Venom opens. I know, and I'm... I, I'm so torn. I'll still end up probably going to see it. Uh huh. But I don't know. And I love Tom Hardy too. But I just I don't think this movie looks very good. Looks like a typical like action kind of movie, and I think they like lost the whole purpose of Venom. Like yeah, it's backstory. It's very odd, I think, to make a Venom movie without introducing him in, in Spider-Man. So yep. He has no connection to Spider-Man at all. So it'll be sad, though, if this is his second like big screen appearance and they both suck. Because Spider-Man 3 was a big ball of suck. And this one I got a bad feeling about. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the Venom stuff looks cool. Yeah, the yeah. voice is weird, and I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely go see it. Mm. And, uh, and by the way, on uh, one of my other podcasts on Inside Your Head next week, I'm actually going to have uh, Wayne Pierre, who plays uh, plays a Doctor Emerson in Venom. Hmm. Well, that sounds notes. interesting. Oh, nice. That should be kind of cool then. Yeah, that'll be good times. You can check that out on uh, InsideYourHead.club. Dot club? Yes. Dot. Well, the reason here is, Troy, InsideYourHead.com would have cost three grand. Holy sheep shit. 
So I, so I would have went Dog Club, too. Yes, yes, that was 99 cents. All right, that seems like a much better deal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, do you write club, or is it like the uh, card suit clubs? C-L-U-B. Okay. Join the club on InsideYourHead.club. Oh, I like it. All right, that's easy to remember, then. So, uh, you know what else is pretty cool is this... Um, the uh, I designed a video cover mm-hmm. for the Lich by James Balsamo, right? And you can get that now on FamilyVideo.com. So it's pretty cool to see a cover art that I designed up on Video uh, FamilyVideo.com. That's totally badass. Yeah, I, like I think so. I like it too. <laughs> So uh, here we got some news here from uh, from our newsman Kane. Oh, all right, hit me with the news. Netflix oh, has yes. added uh, and Netflix has added a new section called Netflix and Chills for October. Ooh. Tell me uh, more. They've, they have Hellraiser, mm-hmm. The Shining, nice, Creep One and Two. Like both of those. Mm-hmm. I think they were already on Netflix, but well, that's fine. And uh, TV shows like Astro's Evil Dead. Nice. iZombie. I've never watched that. No, I never have either. I don't even know what it's about. I assume zombies. Yeah. And I and Dexter. Nice. Oh, very good. Also, Netflix originals like The Babysitter and Stranger Things. Nice. <laughs> Excuse me. Last War will be released. Yes. Uh, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Part 1 will also be added uh, when it comes out in October 26. Sabrina? Like Sabrina the Teenage Witch? Yeah, they made a new, darker version. So Archie's all dark now, huh? Between mm-hmm. like that Riverdale or whatever it is, and now this. Yeah, you need everything needs to be dark and gritty. Alright, so we're going to have like Evil Richie Rich soon? So you got to be like a total prick, you know? That would be, you know, that's interesting. Yeah, you could either, you could either be like an omen version. Oh, that'd be like awesome. Antichrist. Or, or just a real could... rich prick, you know? Just like yeah. some kid that like likes to, yeah, fuck all you peasants. That's what I just read the, the recent trade of, um, well, The Walking Dead. So it's like the last. I won't say the last four issues because by the time this came out, I guess there's been a couple other one issues since then. But uh, it's volume thirty of uh, The Walking Dead, and I gotta say, like if if you really are into uh, mother and daughter relationships, should I this, be weirded out? This, this is fantastic. But if you're looking for like horror, I would I would uh, say don't read it. <laughs> wow, I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement. No, there was like there was the well, there wasn't one. Uh, I'm not not saying there's gonna be wall the wall kills, but there wasn't one kill. There was uh, no zombies. There was well, there was a zombie attack, but it, like they just killed them. Um, actually, there was no uh, no mention of Negan, which was strange. Mm. Um, Rick is barely in it. And a then, lot of mother uh, and daughter thing going yeah, on. Yeah, so there's mother and daughter and uh, Maggie and her, 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 not really real daughter, but her adopted daughter. 
And then, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but another character found their daughter that they thought was dead. I mean, that, that part was interesting, but then it's like, it's like, a, you know, two comics worth of like them get back together. And I'm like, wow. I don't care about this shit. <laughs> I don't read a comic to be like, oh, you know, I hated you because I thought you were dead. <laughs> I love you, but it's like, I don't give a fuck. I want. I mean, I want. Yeah, I want story. I'm not saying there should be no story. You know, most people said the Walking Dead should just be nonstop. You zombies eating people, but my God, there's got to be a little bit of it. Yeah, it's kind of like false advertising. Otherwise, yeah, it's really just lame. I'm like, what the hell am I reading this for? And then the um, the new like now. I fought this idea for a while that it is true that The Walking Dead really is the same kind of idea over and over. It's like they find a new home, it gets invaded. They find a new home, it gets invaded. Uh, it did kind of change, uh, which I guess is where the show is going, where then they rebuild society, which I actually like. Oh, idea. okay. But yeah, I don't think any of them ever got to that point. Any, like, sorry. No, right. Yeah. So I like that. It kind of skips ahead, like, like some years in the future, and mm-hmm. how, how you know now. And I think they're doing it on the show. I, I like all that. I think that's yep. very interesting. And so anyway, now they found another civilization. Kind of starts to be again like the old stuff. And uh, the ruler again is called the governor, but it's a woman. And it's not interesting in the least. Oh no, really? No, it's I see where they're going. With like they're going with like a class idea where you've got like the rich people and then worker class and stuff and mm-hmm. I get that but it's not it's not done well at all. Hmm. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it. I don't know. They play f- football. Are there still zombies running around? Well, no. Around. Oh, no. Well, there are, like, way off in the distance somewhere. But no, these people have also rebuilt their own society, and they have, like, 50,000 people. Oh, wow. It's like a big ass town. Yeah. Multiple towns, I guess. And they have, like, football teams. Hmm. I don't know. It's not interesting. <laughs> I assume it'll, something will happen. But. As of right now, it's just like, hey, in this like great place, I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you know what's gonna happen? Something bad. Yep. Well, especially if you know, think after last time with the governor, they would have changed the name anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Pretty weak, even just calling it's having another governor. I think mm. the Commonwealth, yeah. all this place. Hmm. So you're not feeling it so far, huh? No. And I hope the show doesn't go down this route. Some boring ass some people. Some boring ass television. Well, you never know, because like a lot of the people, uh, you know, were so upset about Negan and stuff. Maybe this is what they want. That's true. They were like, we don't, we don't want all this mayhem and murder and death. Yeah. We just want the good guys to to, to always win, and not only just always win, but 
like never have any any type of uh i mean obviously they should win in the in the long run but you have to the you have to have them overcome oh yeah well that was kind of the weird thing i got like from some people the vibe with uh with avengers 3 you know, is the fact that, like, the heroes didn't just, like, romp everybody and, you know, beat Thanos' ass. And it's like, well, you know, would that, wouldn't that get a little dull if that's always what happened, you know, every time? Yeah, no. I mean, you know, that's what's going to happen eventually, but mm. you have to get there. Yeah. What good is it if they don't overcome anything? Yeah. And like you like say, it gets pretty dull at that point. Yeah, what if you just watch Rocky and he just won every fight? <laughs> yep. I'd get in there and he knocked Creed out in the first round. <laughs> That'd be a hell of a movie. <laughs> so then yep. he knocks out Mr. T and he knocks out the Russian. Yep. Everybody just like just destroys everyone. Yeah. I don't think it would have ever made it to that point. No, he beats, you know, that guy in the street. What a dumb movie that was. Oh, yeah. What was that, number five? Yeah. Yeah, that was Tommy bad time. I did like the one after that, though. I like yeah, the Creed I movie. Too. I still haven't seen it. I got to see it before the, the next one comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should, you should do that. So, anyway, let's see here. Uh, uh, this is great news. Uh, Victor Miller won his, uh, his court case. Awesome. All right, that really makes me happy. I agree. I like this. The the man who wrote it. Yep. He beat the evil empire. Yep. And if anybody can't get behind that, there's something wrong with you. You know? Yeah, you're really just It's an this asshole. guy's thing. Like, you know, you can't tell me just because you liked it or, you know, you enjoyed the games or the movies or whatever that this guy didn't have the right to get some money off of his friggin' story. Then yeah, that's that's not right. Mm-hmm. Shame on you. Uh so I still don't think they know what's going on here with the. Uh, I think they just they're just not doing the game anymore. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Eh. Greedy bastards give the guy his money like you down. Know, ah. Hmm. See here. Sophia Lillis, whose breakout role was a Beverly Marsh in 2017, it's it has oh, yeah. been cast Riddle and Hansel. Ooh. Orion Pictures describes the movie as a reimagining of the Brothers Grimm's fairy tale. The movie will be directed by Osgood Perkins, the author and director behind The Black Coat's Daughter. Hmm. I'm not even familiar with that one. No, me neither. So that's interesting. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of, like, the last fairy tale movie that I've enjoyed. Yeah, that's hard. I, I don't know if there's ever been one. Hmm. Probably not. Yeah, so I, I'm not really sure if that's a good thing or not. So AMC has a fear fest. Ooh. Whole bunch of horror movies coming up Sunday the 14th. 
Um, I think it's uh, the 14th through the 27th. Okay. So far, so good. Yeah, the Ghost Rider. What an odd one. Ghost Rider. Wow. Halloween 2. Okay. All right. They're picking up the pace a little bit there. Yeah. This is really weird because it starts with Halloween 2. They skip 3. Okay. I, I understand. I love it, but I understand it doesn't follow in the storyline. Okay. Then it goes to 4, 5. Uh, they don't show 6, I don't believe. Or is, that, or is Halloween the Curse of Michael Myers? Maybe that's part 6. Yeah, that- then it goes, I guess. And then it goes to H2O. And then they show the original Halloween. <laughs> So after everything, they show the original. Yeah, how's that mm. make any sense? Why not show the original and watch the rest? Yeah, kind of would make a little more sense. Yeah, I know it's the best one, but still, you got to watch them in order. Yeah, you can't just save it for last because it's like you know the best one. Exactly. So, uh, uh, Eli Ross' uh, History of Horror is going to be on that. I've heard really good things about this. Maybe he's turned over a new leaf. Maybe Eli Roth will be our go-to guy in a few years. Well, he's a host of a show. He's going like, to interview people. But he, oh, okay. he's not making anything. Oh, all right. But, uh, yeah, I know Michael Epstein and uh, Sophia Cacciola, uh, friends of the show, that uh, they saw it somewhere, a sneak preview. And uh, Michael told me it was, it was very good. Okay. Well, that's good to hear, though. So uh, scheduled to appear on the History of Horrors, uh, Stephen King, nice. George Keel, Jason Bloom, Linda Blair, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rob Zombie, Quentin Tarantino, and more. Hmm. It's pretty big. All right, I'm intrigued, yeah. Let's see. Let's see uh, Return to the House on Haunted Hill. I did not realize that was a movie. Return to the house on Haunted Hill? What year is that one from? Uh, uh, 2007. Hmm. That was one that uh, I did not see. Is that like from the Jeffrey Rush, like House on Haunted Hill? Like the, is it a if sequel, it's a to, sequel to it? It must be. I wonder if I, I can't know. imagine he's in it. Because you think they would have some buzz. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm confused. Uh, let's see. There's a whole kinds of poltergeist, hills of eyes, crazies, trick or treat. Uh, all three, well, the first three Exorcist films. Why do they want to show Exorcist 2? <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> one you could skip. Yeah, you could definitely skip. Uh, Hellraiser Revelations. Oh my God! Which one's that one? That's the one. Uh, not this newest one, but the one before that. Uh-huh. I was going to say the one without uh, Doug Bradley, but I actually thought the last one was pretty good. But this was with the this horrendous, the uh, horrendous pinhead. Oh really? Oh my God! It was bad. Of all movies, good lord. <laughs> And this is still on the uh, AMC thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Ghost Ship, I, Frankenstein, Piranha, like Placid, Eight-Legged Freaks, Cult of Chucky, Curse of Chucky. 
Man. Damn, they're cranking some jazz out, though. Yeah. Most of them are my favorites, so I got to admit. No. Then they show the Halloween movies in order. Okay. Thursday. And then Friday they show Halloween 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, 6, and then the original again, and then H2O, and then the original again. Whoa. That's wackiness. Yeah. Uh, bunch of stuff. So uh, The Omen, Annabelle, Friday the 13th, Piranha 3D, Thinner. Silver bullets. Weird. This one day, it's all um, King movies. Fourteen oh eight. Christine. Silver bullet. Thinner. Firestarter. Misery. Dead zone. Graveyard shift. And Piranha three D. <laughs> Maybe he was the ghostwriter of that movie. Maybe he was. I actually liked the movie. I did too. I really enjoyed it. It's very, very odd. Could they just they could I guess they just could not find another King movie they could get right <laughs> yeah to. there's not nearly enough out there come on folks like we do well I'll just throw Peron in there <laughs> no one will notice uh, let's see here sci-fi uh, they're gonna be getting a live action Lobo on sci-fi's Krypton whoa. I don't know if you're familiar with Lobo, Neil. I have no idea who he is. He's kind of DC's rip-off Wolverine with a little bit of, like, comedy thrown in there. He's like this alien bounty hunter guy that looks like a big Wolverine. I gotcha. Interesting. So, check that out. Uh, I probably will never watch that. It's no. on the show. Did, uh... <laughs> Did they say who plays the Lobo character? Yeah, Emmett Scanlon from Constantine. Hmm. Don't really know him. Me neither. Like, uh, it says that, uh, yeah, like that Lobo's a seven-foot-tall blue guy. Yep. Did they show a picture of him? I'm looking at the picture now. He looks gray. But you can see, like, the Wolverine, like, resemblance can't you not so much in who he's playing well i mean the, oh, i'm talking okay. about the guy on the show oh all right on the, sh- on the show he's got like dreadlocks and like a vest he's got yeah, like almost clown makeup on or his eyes red yeah, eyes he does have the weird makeup thing going on he's uh I, I mean, I, I liked him on, I think I saw him on some animated thing where he was kind of cool, but yeah. I don't know if that'll make for like a good movie or not, or a good show. Yeah, yeah. I guess they have kept the, the, the similar look. Yeah, I could see the Wolverine do. Yeah. Yeah, they kept him pretty similar. He doesn't look muscular, though, I have to say, the still photo. Oh, okay, because in the comics, he always looks crazy jacked. Yeah. Maybe maybe they'll put maybe they'll get the dude some roids or something. Maybe <laughs> or a muscle suit. Exactly, that's true. I gotta say, uh, so uh, last week I went uh, for a weekend up to Boston because um, William Lustig was uh, was up there and he was uh, for Vigil Ante on Friday night and then a Q and A and then he uh, received the After Midnight Award on Saturday and they showed uh, Maniac Cop two. Nice. 
And uh, he told the story. I'll have the video up because I recorded the whole thing. But he told the story about when he's doing Mania Cup 2 and Zedar shows up and he had lost a lot of weight from the previous movie. Uh, he got in like really good shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, and William said, so I told him, uh, you know, I, I wanted, you know, the, the big, not the not the little. What would it take to get you, uh, you know, back into the big shape? And so he asked for a certain amount of money. He went and got it out of the. Uh... So basically, then he just looked at the crowds like, you know, he went and bought steroids. Yeah, it was it was very funny. But, wow. But he, he was very open about it. It's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, maybe not that he did that, but. Uh, I'd never seen. um Vigilante by William Lustig. Yeah, what what was it like? I thought it was great. It was, was uh, it? kind of yeah, sort of a Death Wish kind of movie. Nice. Uh, Robert Forster was the star. Oh, okay. And uh, so, like his uh, his kid gets mur- killed, and his wife gets like you know beat up and cut up, and so then he goes and gets revenge. That's always good. That makes yeah. it like an interesting tale. Yeah, there's some cool tidbits from the uh, the Q and A. Because um, oh shit, Mani- the guy who plays Maniac. Oh, he's he's in it. Yeah, he plays a uh, plays a um, a lawyer. Which is... Nice. What's his name? Oh, I can't think offhand, Neil. I'm sorry. Look at him up. Gotta know the Maniac. Yeah. God damn. Shame on us. Now, now when I look up Maniac, he gets this TV show. There's nothing to do with the Maniac. Oh yeah, Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell. Yeah, there you go. So he was talking about Joe Spinell, and he was, you know, I guess Joe Spinell was like a big dr- uh, drinker and did a lot of uh, other recreational things. And but uh, so his big idea for the movie was uh, that he should have uh, a sex scene with like this re- the young lawyer in the movie. And he said it'd be a flashback, and so he just said he just was wanting this just so he could get in bed with the with the actress. That's awesome. Which I thought was pretty sweet. So uh, the end of the movie, I hate to spoil the movie, but was it know, Carolyn Monroe? No, but oh, uh, right. I think that's why he got Carolyn Monroe in Maniac was yeah he wanted to be with. That's a so, horny bastard, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the end of uh, Vigilante. I hate to spoil a movie. You know, if you haven't seen this forty-year-old movie, close your ears for a minute. And so the guy he blows up the car of the judge who uh, who, who who set the people free that that killed his kid. Mm-hmm. So that that's a pretty sweet ending. And so he, he said though, like in certain areas, they had to add this thing where it said that the guy ended up getting arrested and went to jail for killing the judge. Oh, no, really? Certain, yeah, because certain areas would not allow you to think that this guy got off free for killing uh, a judge. Oh, that's kind of funny. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. So, uh, And he was a great dude. He uh, stayed till like three in the morning signing, you know, pictures for everybody. And- oh, that's awesome. Gave out full size free posters. It was pretty sweet. I gotta say, I love the um, their little trophy award thing. Yeah, I thought it's that awesome. was like a great looking like 
monster on there, you know, sitting yeah. in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. He's eating popcorn. Yeah, I loved that. I thought that was like the coolest thing. The first year they gave it to Lloyd Kaufman. Oh, cool. nice. And then last year was Adrian Barbeau. Oh, man. So, like, he's joined a pretty good group then. Yeah, this year's William Lustig. That's awesome. Oh, just like three really cool people. That's that's great. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently, uh, Bloomhouse has their uh, they have uh, they have sequels planned for the new Halloween. Oh, do they? They might be jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it's going to do. It's going to be huge. I now, hope so. People love it or not is another thing, but yeah, I think people will go and see it immediately. Yeah, you're probably right. But uh, I have no problem with sequels. It is no. weird. You'll have like, like multiple. I always think about this. Like if you're, like a if pick a path book now. <laughs> you can like answer. choose which which sequel you want to go with. You know, you'll have three and you can go, well, this way. No, nah, no, nah, go with this yeah. one. Then you have this alternate universe of the, the Rob Zombie ones. Right, right. There you go. Very odd. But I always think, like, I don't know, like, when I first discovered, you know, Friday the 13th, like, it was cool to watch them in order, even even if they're not great. Like, I'd watch the first four. But uh, now, like, if you had just discovered these movies now, like you were, like, a kid, and, like, you'd try to watch them in order, I think you'd just be confused. Like, I'm watching uh, Halloween and Halloween 2, and then there's witches. And then there's like this this like devil cult, and then they just then they just trash all that. Now it's back to one and two and a sequel, and then you got like a rapper beating up Michael Myers. And... Yeah, it's gonna yeah, kind of pick your poison on that one. Mm-hmm. And if the other uh, one's not so like an ending, I'm sorry, like just. If if the one with the weird people with the boots following them around, if they would have given us some kind of ending, yeah, I've always wanted to. I wanted a payoff to that. Yeah, always felt I, cheated I, in that. Yeah, even if it was, it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was a sh- shitty ending because it's like <laughs> this, uh, you know, this uh, cliffhanger ending. Yeah. Yep. And then, bam! Let's then. They just kind of blap, you know. Let's do a, a big, ver, a big sequel, and we'll <laughs> yep. forget all this other shit. Yep, forget any of that happened. We're just kidding. Terrible. I agree. Uh, we you know, we get direct sequels to the first one. Why not a direct sequel to number six? I, I'm with you. It can be like a red box exclusive or something. That's fine. Not saying it's gonna be like a twenty million dollar movie. Let's see. Uh, Todd McFarlane did the Halloween uh, poster for uh, for New York Comic Con. It's pretty sweet. Oh no, kidding! Ooh, I always always look forward to seeing like a cool McFarlane thing. Yeah. Don't always don't always look forward to reading stuff by him, but always look mm-hmm. forward to seeing stuff from him. Hmm. Uh, Anna and the Apocalypse is coming out in theaters November 30th. I heard great things about this. This played in um, 
at Fright Fest, but uh, we did not get to see it. But it's a horror musical, and I've heard it's awesome. Oh, wow. That sounds cool to me. I always dig a good horror musical. I do, too. Uh, Hannibal Lecter beat out Darth Vader as the best villain of all time. Wow. That's that's pretty good. He should beat his chest a little bit, I think, on that. I think so. I'm I'm fine with that. I was thinking, I don't know, but that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's cool, though. That's good that they're the top two, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a uh, new line that's going to be putting out the uh, remake to the South Korean zombie film Train to Busan. That I'm not so cool with. No. I love that movie, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It needs no retelling, remaking, anything else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really good comes movie. To, this comes down to American people, American audience. They don't want to read. Fucking Americans. I'm afraid of Americans, you know. I am too. Uh, let's see. Jennifer Beals is going to be uh, the sheriff in the upcoming Swamp Thing series. Wow. Now that has potential to be good. Now, yeah. you know, it, the, the original series was like real cheaply made and stuff, but mm. I think if they uh, put some money into it, uh, and, and you can have like gritty, dark stuff on TV now, I think that could be excellent. Oh yeah, yeah. Some some of the old DC comic stuff with uh, with the Swamp Thing was great. Mm-hmm. GQ claims the Haunting of Hill House is the first great horror TV show ever. Well, first of all, well, I'm. It looks cool. I haven't seen the uh, the the trailer the commercial, mm-hmm. but I think we've had other great TV shows. Oh Love yeah, great horror shows. Where yeah. Why are they, like, you know, discounting every other horror show ever? Yeah, that's pretty silly. I, love, I mean, Dexter was awesome. Dexter, yeah. And then, like, um, oh, e- even, like, the, the crazy ones when I was a kid, like uh, Callchack the Night Stalker there. I yeah. love that show. Exactly. It's silly. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't you can't exclude The Walking Dead. It was like the one of the oh, biggest yeah. shows ever for, for years. Absolutely, Walking Dead, and yeah, there's there's been an awful lot of them over the years. Even yeah. the Night Gallery and things like that. Yeah, True Blood. I was not a big fan of, but I mean, people loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So uh, we mentioned Killer Clowns from Outer Space doing a sequel. But uh, the Chio brothers are saying that they'll do a trilogy in four parts. Hmm. As cool as that is. A trilogy in four parts. Yeah. And that's just a, isn't that just a quadruple? (laughs) Yeah, quadrology or something. I guess the, the last one will be like part one and two. I mean, look, Killer Cons from Outer Space is cool. I'm looking forward to it. They're wild. They're crazy. Also, but does it need to be a trilogy? And <laughs> probably yeah. not. Do you need like this? You know, they split up some movies in two parts nowadays. But is Killer Clowns from Outer Space really one that needs to be like a four <laughs> hour, like four hour version? My story must be told. It's you know. You're going to lose a lot of nuance if you don't uh, make it, you know, eight hours long. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't believe that. Exactly. So, uh, Jason and I will be headed um, uh, November to uh, Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival. Gonna shuffle off to Buffalo. I... Exactly. And they just announced that they had 500 submissions this year for movies. Wow. And so they've narrowed it down to these films. Uh, uh, Bat Traticus. <laughs> a Bronx community faces a zombie breakout following the appearance of a mutated bat rat. Okay, that's weird. I like it. The Child Remains. First-rate chiller in which uh, an expectant couple's intimate weekend turns to terror when they discover a secluded country inn is a haunted maternity home where unwanted infants and mothers were murdered. Oh, that sounds like that has some potential. That sounds good. Inspired by the true story of the infamous Butterbox Babies. Wow. Uh, Clickbait. Uh, I've seen, and we had uh, we had the, the cast on the show and uh, the filmmakers themselves, uh, Sophia Cacciola and Michael Epstein, mm-hmm. a college student who will do just about anything for internet fame, is kidnapped by a fan, and her reluctant roommate is the only one who can save her in this horror satire of popularity culture. It's kind of cool. Very good. Uh, closer than we think. Entertaining documentary about the art and life of Arthur Radabog, the visionary imagineer and creator of the Sunday comic strip Closer Than We Think. Hmm. I'm not even familiar with that one. Me neither. Interesting. Derelicts. A strange suburban family's Thanksgiving is disrupted by a gang of vicious vi- vagrants. Nice. Barbarity abounds and secrets are brought to the table in which in this pitch black burlesque violent gore sexual situations. Hmm. All right, I'm sold on that one too. Yeah. Um Eulenia as a Thai film. Hmm. A stylish, hypnotic, and beautifully filmed thriller from Paul Spurrier, writer-director of the elegant ghost story The Forest, which we screened two years ago. Mm. I like The Forest. Yeah, it was a good movie. The Fear Footage. This year's found footage movie is terrifying. On April 19, 2016, Deputy Leo Cole vanished. The next morning, the body camera was found. From writer-director Ricky Umberger. Hmm. I'm not a fan of found footage films. But I was going to ask if you were over that yet. No. All right. Because I didn't know if enough time had gone past. Right. You never know. This one might surprise me. Yep. Framed. This year's What the Fuck extravaganza is both a home invasion thriller and a satire on social media and the quest for fame. Okay. That one's from Spain. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. I've only seen a couple of of horror flicks from Spain, and I've enjoyed them. I don't know if I've... I probably have seen some. 
have to think about it. Did you ever see The Devil's Backbone? It's a really good one. I've never seen that, actually. I know that's... Um, man, with the eyes El and the tall... Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Doug Jones is going to be at um, a Mad Monster party in February. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that one, like, the lineup is just crazy-ish. Yeah, that's going to be sweet. Uh, I dare you to open your eyes. Niagara Falls director Hope Mulbar, who co-wrote the script with her father, Tom Mulbar, tackles bullying in this dramatic slasher film. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd check that one out. All right, I was a little worried at first, Neil, but some of these sound pretty good. Yeah, where am I? I'll take your dead. I like the name. Yeah. Uh, Black films, Black Fawn films return with his most accomplished film to date. William has an unusual job illegally disposing of the bodies that gangbangers in nearby city bring to the isolated house he shares with his young daughter, Gloria. Uh, Gloria has developed the ability to see and communicate with the spirits of the victims. Mm. That one uh, might be a good one, too. Yeah. Ingenium, the German film. International thriller takes a turn to, into the fantastic with a plot twist we can't spoil. Hmm. Uh, Jasper from Switzerland. In an undetermined time and place, Jasper, a solitary soul, rescues a young woman left for dead in an alley and takes her home to look after her, unaware that this will change his life. Oh. Lieutenant Jangles. Oh. An over-the-top political, politically incorrect spoof of 80s buddy action films in the most crime-ridden city of Australia. Only one man can... Uh, only one man keep Evens a scale of justice. I don't think that's written right. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah. So what's this called again, Neil? Uh, the Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival. Oh, okay. I didn't realize there's so many movies, so I'm not going to read all these, but uh, there's a whole bunch <laughs> of them. a ton of them. Yeah. Murder in High Heels. Uh, Maddie Fresno in the Holoflux universe. <laughs> the Next Kill. Post-apocalyptic commando shark. What the hell? Whoa, that one you can't miss. It's the near future, and Russian troops led by talking humanoid sharks have taken over the United States. Now that sounds like a movie. Wow. Uh, Red Spring, Strike Dear Mistress, and Cure His Heart. That's an interesting title. Mm. Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon. <laughs> That's the title? Mm-hmm. Wow. And Willow the Wisp. Oh, I'm surprised that's never been used before. No, interesting. Very cool. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. We should probably get Tommy Lee Wallace on here. That sounds good, Chief. Looking forward to, like, uh, what he's got to say about things. Yeah, so uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some tunes from... The Tomb of Nick Cage, one of our favorites. Yep. And then we will be back here with Tommy Lee Wallace. Very good. 
Excellent. We shall return. Welcome to this station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Tommy Lee Wallace here to kick off October. I think it's a perfect guest here, the man behind Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. How you doing? I'm pretty good. How about yourself, Neil? Very good. Very good. And uh, Well, you've done a lot of things, but uh, since it is October, I do want to talk some about Halloween 3, which is always one of my favorites. Which is Thank you. weird now because it seems like when I was a kid, not everyone liked it, but now it seems like the minority doesn't like it. I think you're you've got it dead on. It took a while for it to find its audience because uh, we made a terrible error in releasing it as Halloween Three. It really sh- would have been fine if it had been called Season of the Witch and advertised that way, but because it was. Uh, billed as Halloween 3, and there was no attempt to enlighten the audience as to what we were really trying to do. There was a terrible backlash in the beginning with people like, you know, where's Jamie Lee? You know, where's Michael Myers? And so forth. 
and that was our mistake. It was Universal's mistake. Uh, it was uh, just a dumb thing to not go ahead and let the audience in and set the table for what should have been a yearly anthology series going on and on and on. Because, you know, uh, there there got to be a thousand great stories waiting to be told about the season of Halloween. Uh, and it's still to this day, I think of it as a real money making proposition to do it that way. But be that as it may. Halloween came out, was poorly received, and it has taken all these years, but I think you're right. These days, uh, those who dislike it are in the minority, and it has a huge fan base that keeps building every year because, after all, it's really and truly about Halloween. And so every year, I people tell me they watch it, you know, right, on, right at Halloween, sometimes three times, that, that sort of thing. So it's really gratifying that it finally came out from under that stigma and uh, people come up now and I'll just, they'll say, you know, I don't care what anybody says. I like it. And I say, you don't have to defend it anymore. All you have to do to those naysayers is just look them in the eye and say, did you not get the memo? It's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. So, so at the time, uh, you, did anyone think like, uh, you know, we have to have Michael Myers in it or people might not take this because Michael Myers isn't in it or no one really thought of that until it came out. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, uh, after Halloween two had absolutely declared that they'd had enough of Michael Myers, the myth, the story, the shape, the whole, that whole routine. They were sick of it. They didn't want to do any more, but the, the powers that be kept coming at them for, you know, they wanted them to continue to participate. And John and Deborah both said, well, okay, we'll do that if we can do something completely different that we don't have to adhere to the, uh, to the myth, because we were, we were naive. That was before the days of like sequel itis. The mm -hmm. sequels were still a fairly unusual thing. And when somebody first suggested Halloween 2 with us, we looked at him funny. It was like, why? Why would we want to do? Uh, we made a really good horror movie, and it really was well-made, complete. Why would we want to do a sequel? Well, they, we just, we were naive is the best way I can think of to put it. We just didn't quite get it. Uh and so sequelitis came, and it's still upon us. I think now it's a, it's a you know, it's a <laughs> yeah. plague upon a plague upon the planet, but it's still going on because uh, it's kind of easier. Executives don't have to think at all if you say sequel. It's like, oh, okay, just do a sequel. <laughs> they they don't have to put any brain time in on supporting it or thinking about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. I think that's part of what's driving this craziness mm -hmm. so uh obviously you worked a lot before uh with john carpenter and deborah hill so like how, how did you guys uh get together how did you meet them john and i go back all the way to childhood uh we grew up in the same town we went to the same school john's a year older than me so we weren't didn't for in the early days we didn't run in the same circles when way back, back when a year was a big gap you know, when you're in the third or fourth grade. But by the time we were teenagers, we got together around music. 
there was a lot of music about and John had uh, taught himself to play the guitar and uh, we were in both in an orchestra. He played violin, I played trombone and he was sitting in the back of the bus with his guitar and all these girls were gathered around and he was playing his guitar. I thought, this is cool. And so I went back and I'd been in a little like church choirs and things forever. So I could harmonize very easily. And we started singing, you know, the, the predictable tunes, folk tunes and Everly Brothers tunes and that. And more girls gathered around. So I was like, this is very cool. <laughs> so we, we kind of, uh, with John's girlfriend, we turned into sort of the Peter, Paul and Mary of our, of our town. And then later John and I jumped in together in an electric band, like a garage band, a cover band and gigged around for a couple of years. And, uh, John went on out West. He, he was really, uh, internally well-directed from the beginning. He knew what a film director was. He wanted to be one of those. He was, he, he, he really was knowledgeable about that. Plus he was just a, from the beginning, a real creative dynamo. He was always writing or drawing like comic books or, you know, uh, writing songs, whatever. Mm -hmm. And he really made a huge impression on me in those early days. Uh, so when he decided he wanted to go to film school, I helped him, I took him up to the library and, uh, the college library in our town. And there's this blue book that has all the universities. And so he narrowed it down to university of Miami, New York university and university of Southern California. And in the end he went there. And then after I went to art school in Ohio, I, went west and decided to be with friends, uh, John among them, and uh, uh, also got accepted into film school, kind of as he and his crowd were, were leaving school, graduating or not, uh, and moving on into the film business. And so I was a, sort of a newcomer, but I helped out on uh, his very first feature, Dark Star, which he and Dan O'Bannon, were busily turning into a uh, full-length feature from their student film. Uh, so that's where I kind of started out, was I, I was experienced graphic designer, and uh, Dan O'Bannon trusted me, so I helped him a great deal. Uh, it was sort of his right hand there for a while on Dark Star, and then it was just a logical progression after that. Uh, John and Dan had a falling out. So when John's second feature, uh, which became Assault on Precinct 13, mm -hmm. uh, when, when it came time and he found some financing for that, he turned to me for the art department and then ultimately to cut the sound effects and, and to cut the uh, video, the uh, mon action montages. And then by the time Halloween came along, I was his logical choice to do both jobs, production design and uh, editing as well. A combination I do not recommend to anyone because you just <laughs> forget what you forget what sleep is like. Oh. But I did uh, I did do it one more time on the fog. Uh, but that's how that's how I got started in the movie business in general uh, was because John and I go so far back. Yeah. So how how did it come about for you to uh to direct Halloween 3? Well, I was 
uh, I was set actually to direct Halloween two when that opportunity okay. came up. But I was the it was either going to be Deborah Hill or me, and for whatever reasons, Deborah. It, for for from the get go, John was not about to direct a sequel of his own masterpiece. Okay, it wasn't quite like The Godfather. It there just wasn't enough material to do uh, something else really creative with it. But he knew, you know, it it was going to get made. So let's pick somebody else to direct it, and that was logically going to be Deborah Hill or me. And Deborah, for her own reasons didn't want to do it and they turned to me and I was delighted I thought that would be great except the catch was that when John and Deborah turned in the script to Halloween 2 I just absolutely hated it I couldn't stand it 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 was for me it was everything that the original Halloween was not uh that is to say in the time it, it didn't happen right away right after Halloween it, some time went by. I think we made the fog before Halloween two even came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it was, it, it was, I can't think how many weeks or months I was on the show as the director until the script came in. And then I just, I didn't know what to do because it was a great opportunity. But for my own part, I knew it would be wrong to, do a movie I didn't have my my heart in, and I also knew that that would be a disservice to John and Deborah. They needed needed a director who was really behind the movie and was gung ho about it. So I kind of uh, held my breath and said no, and felt horrible about it. But it was the right decision because I still don't like that movie. It's it. You see, in the meantime, since Halloween was released and Halloween was all about, there's almost no blood in Halloween at all. It's, and it's not what you'd call gory. It's mostly about suggestion and expectation and really classic suspense, uh, manipulating the audience with suspense and expectation. Whereas, uh, after Halloween, a bunch of imitators came along, including Friday the 13th. And before you knew it, there was like an arms race in violence and sort of slasher mentality. So that by the time Halloween 2 came along, I think John felt a lot of pressure to, he had to sort of keep up with what was already out there at that point. So that meant hypodermic needles being plunged into people's eyeballs and stuff like that. That I just, I understood why he did it. And I think he, I think he made the right choice because <laughs> clearly it went out there and it made a bunch of money, but it was, and he even admits now that that was a, that was a real sellout job. And I'm glad I stayed away from it. Uh, normally when you say no to somebody in Hollywood, you're, uh, you're done. It, they might not right. even return your phone call after that. But uh, John especially was an old dear friend and Deborah, a newer friend. When Halloween three, the opportunity to do another movie under the imprimatur of Halloween came up, mm-hmm. they knew that train was leaving the station, whether they were part of it or not. And so they, they made their, uh, their, their terms clear and that was, we'll do one, but it's not going to be about 
the Michael Myers legend and so forth. And when they got the okay for that, I think they first turned to Joe Dante, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I wasn't the first guy they picked, but Joe got something else and moved on. And then I think Deborah was the one who thought of me. And when they, when I got the call, I was working, uh, I was writing the script for Dino De Laurentiis in New York, the uh, prequel to the Amityville horror called mm-hmm. The Possession. And uh, I was delighted to hear from them because, you know, I just, these are old friends and it was so gratifying that they would think of me. And I said, yes, immediately. I was delighted to hear about it and decided to go forward with it because we were getting to write all new everything, you know, start from scratch and make up a new story. And uh, so away we went. So uh, did you have a story in mind for Halloween three before uh, the original script came in? No, I did not. Uh, John had been a longtime fan of Nigel Neal, who's uh, associated with uh, various Quatermass uh, stories from England uh, that uh, he had been a longtime fan. And so uh, he asked Nigel Neal to come up with something. And Deborah, and I believe it was Deborah who was driving the notion that this was going to be witchcraft in the computer age. That was her one one sentence pitch. And so Nigel came up with this really twisted story about a evil toy maker and about uh, these horrifying masks that do bad things to children. Uh, and that the skeleton of that story, although Nigel's name is not on the film because he removed it, mm-hmm. but uh, Nigel's script was really interesting. It had some shortcomings, and so John got to work on those, and then I got to work on John's version. But my name was the only one that wound up on the script, which is terribly inaccurate, but this is the way show business sometimes works. Mm-hmm. Um but I'd say about 60% of Nigel's script is still in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, also uh, involved Dean Cundy, uh, who also uh cinematographer on the, on the first two, did he help kind of keep uh, this looking similar to other movies, even if they're not, you know, in this, they don't have Michael Myers, but they still are kind of, you know, look similar. Well, yeah, I think that that's very true. Dean was one of, one of the bits of continuity along with me from the first uh from well i didn't have much almost nothing to do with halloween too after i stepped away although rick rosenthal did call me up and get me to come in and do some voiceovers but uh, <clears throat> yeah dean dean was was the through line in a way he knew innately kind of what tone to strike in the, his choice of lighting and the way he went about, uh, he knew what we wanted. You know, we saved a lot of time by having him be there, and it was a privilege to have the same crew that had come up with Halloween behind me for Halloween three, because these guys and I had worked shoulder to shoulder behind the camera. And so I knew they had my back. They were rooting for me to be successful, and they were really, really supportive and helpful 
and that certainly included Dean. It it was a joy to work with him again. Yeah. No, uh, I love Tom Atkins, but uh, uh, what is it about uh, uh, Tom Atkins? And uh, he he always plays like a stud in these movies. In the Fog, Jamie Lee Curtis is all over him, and and uh, same with <laughs> Halloween Three. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we. I guess we sort of helped Tommy uh, develop a a cult, um, a mystique around himself about that because he's certainly a, a really kind of a, a despicable character in uh, Halloween Three. Uh-huh. You know, he's he's sort of a drunk and he he leaves his wife and kids and he goes off with this this girl who's you know just appears to be like barely legal. <laughs> and uh you know and yet people people dig him they, they sort of like him there's if i'm sure you go to some of these festivals mm-hmm. and it's unbelievable his t-shirts and hats with you know atkins he's <laughs> he's a cult he's got a cult all around him it's it's just great um, yeah it's uh, yeah I, after all these years and he's still kind of just amused by it you know because uh-huh. he just yeah he, the kind of actor who mostly just plays himself and uh, he's very good at it. Yeah. I interviewed him once at a convention, a video, and I asked him about Halloween three and I said, you know, used to people not uh, like it. And now it seems like it's got a big call phone. And he just looked into the camera and he said, I don't give a shit what people thought about Halloween three. I just thought it was a very funny uh, response to the question. <laughs> well, he's great. He's, and he's, I think he's always just been himself and been a, a great individual that, uh, with a distinct point of view. And uh, it would be fun to work with him again sometime. Yeah, he still looks, he still looks pretty much the same. Yeah, he's got like, you know, his hair is white now and he, his hearing is going, but we're all getting older. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well what was the idea between uh, behind like the bugs and snakes in the movie this, you know, it's very unusual. Well, the, you understand you're being a fan of the movie yourself. You understand the idea of, a, of a sacrifice. This, the, the basis of this, you know, Connell Cochran would not have thought of himself as evil or as doing anything bad or wrong. It's simply human sacrifice and unleashing the furies that go with that kind of uh, grand scale destruction. Uh, the idea that what went along with it was bugs and snakes, you know, that the, the, the horrors of, of the unknown and the unleashing of of kind of out of control monster ideas mm-hmm. it just seems to me it seemed like a natural thing that mm-hmm. hey we're doing a horror movie so mm-hmm. what what better would you have come marching out of these poor children who were completely afflicted by this awful call it a death ray if you want that comes out of these masks you know mm-hmm. triggered by television it's all to me, it's it's just like the Furies just unleash uh, unleash the dogs of hell. Mm-hmm. I always think it's much more powerful, memorable, and unique than you know if their heads just blew up or something. Well, yeah, I mean you could do that, but this was 
if if you'll permit a dark point of view, this was more fun. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Uh, when did you come up with the the jingle? Because uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, that was something I would. One of my favorite. I just when well, we Deborah cautioned me that we had to have if we were going to do a jingle, it couldn't be something that that had been copyrighted by somebody, so we couldn't sure. use some current parody of some current product and so i went back to uh the the tune is london bridge is falling down which is long ago been in the public domain so we uh-huh. weren't vulnerable there i just went into the studio with alan howarth and uh you know he set me up a microphone i played several keyboard parts and then i sang with myself in a speeded up voice uh i guess i did like four part harmony or something sounded like leprechauns you know demented leprechauns or something <laughs> uh, but it 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 really gets in your head and stays there it's a, a demented thing yeah yeah i love it oh so, and, uh, and the the, yeah. the piano treatment is uh loosely based on a, a tune i learned as a young musician when I was taking piano lessons called the spinning song. And the left hand goes, and it just worked out. It's pretty awesome. Now, uh, there's been like a lot of direct sequels to the original Halloween, the H2O and now the new one. Uh, have you ever thought of doing a sequel to part three? Uh, somebody sent me a script once. It just, you know, I didn't have the heart. I think when, when they sent me the script, it was still in that era when the movie was being put down a lot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why, you know, why go up against that? If that's the sentiment for some really silly reason, people tend to only make sequels out of movies that were already successful the first time. I've always thought that was counterintuitive that you might want to uh, uh, do a remake or a sequel based on a movie that needed help or that could, could be improved upon, but that's uh-huh. not, that's not the way it goes at all. People yeah. only do only tend to do sequels and remakes on successful movies. So uh, honestly, no, uh, it, it was an interesting idea. And I think, an awful lot of the idea power came from Nigel Neal. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it was done for me, it was, it was really done. I, I don't care to go back to that uh, area again. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we mentioned, you know, now like a lot of people really love the movie, but what was it like for you when it first comes out and it does have a lot of uh, negativity around it? Well, it hurt. It, it really hurt. Cause I knew just as I knew that when we completed Halloween, <clears throat> I knew we'd made a good movie and I knew that it had the right elements to entertain an audience and frighten them and put them through a little roller coaster ride and let them out at the end, having been uh, hopefully effectively entertained for a couple of hours. I felt that very same way about Halloween 3 and I was right. Uh, it is all those things. So it just really hurt that that 
our own stupidity had allowed us to to underestimate the audience. Uh, the audience is always right, and the uh, their their perception going in, we had not done anything about their expectations, and just uh, and the advertising didn't do anything about their expectations. The original ad, there was all this artwork, and it kind of suggested something interesting, but all that all that told the audience what should be you know an entire ad campaign was this little banner way up in the corner that said all new well what the hell does that mean all new (laughs) of course it's all new you know even if it was a true sequel it's still all new so what the hell did they you know i really think in truth I don't think Universal liked the movie very much. I don't think they got it. They wanted to change the ending, and I didn't. Uh, you know, in tribute basically to uh, Don, Se- Don Siegel and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but that's another whole story. Uh, basically, the original Body Snatchers movie was supposed to end with Kevin McCarthy running in the street with all the cars saying, you're next, you're next. And that would have really been a great dead stop ending. But uh, the people, the, the, the people behind the movie, the powers behind the movie insisted he put a bookend on that movie. And if you watch it, you see, that it's like, oh, he lets the audience off the hook. Now he's in a police station and there are phone calls coming in and it's all going to be all right. Isn't that nice? And mm-hmm. I just decided it's not going to all be all right. There's going to be a bunch of kids murdered by this crazy person, this witch mm-hmm. uh, or warlock, I guess, accurately. Uh, and that's what I wanted. And bless John's heart. They put it to him and he's the one who had final cut creative control and he just left it to me he asked me what i wanted to do and that he'd stand behind whatever my decision was and i said let's leave it the way it is and that was really in tribute to don siegel and the movie that should have gotten cut properly for uh, invasion of the body snatchers yeah Um, i've gone off topic here i can't remember what the point was (laughs) Uh, I don't know what we first, but I, I, I like to talk about the end because uh, when I watch it again, uh, you know, for this interview, uh, the end really is very powerful. And I was going to ask you, you know, if people wanted to change it because obviously it's not a uh, a happy ending. But no, hell no. Very, and it's not a happy subject. I, I think if you want to go ahead and get political about it, even then I was ranting and raving against sort of big brother mentality and the corporate takeover of our world especially this country and the power the the uh, the abuse of television and the way the the way it's mostly been used in this country in a what i think is a fairly destructive way we've got a nation of consumers and kind of zombies and television as a medium it comes with the medium i don't think you can uh, cleanse it of that. It's just part of the medium that it thrives on simplicity and it wants conflict and it wants you to get in a mood to buy things and feel inadequate. Well, those are all political issues. 
And uh, I felt very strongly that that doesn't have a happy ending. As far as I can tell, it's, it's, it's gotten worse since the movie was released in 1982. It's only gotten worse. So I think mm-hmm. I was right in having a pessimistic movie. Yeah. And uh, about um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I actually think that's one of the, the rare instances where the, the remake is still very good. Oh, yeah, the, the Donald Pleasance. Yeah, oh, no, uh, yeah. Donald, Donald Sutherland, Sutherland, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty good movie. I don't think it was as good as the uh, original, but it was, it was certainly just fine. Yeah, it's nice that they have uh, the, the character at the beginning uh, you know, running through the streets. That's how the, the first one, like you said, should have ended. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It almost did, but then they put this silly bookend on it and uh, right. <laughs> softened it for the audience. They, they really needed, felt they needed to coddle the audience to have their good box office. And who knows, maybe they were right. <laughs> So when did you know that like uh, that it started to gain the audience, that people started to become big fans of uh, Halloween 3? Well, let me say that right from the beginning, there were many loyal fans who stood up mm-hmm. for it and said, I don't care what anybody says, this is a good movie, I love it. Mm-hmm. But it really started hitting home for me when I started going to these festivals. Um, cons, I guess, is the popular term for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, weekend weekend fests where fans of various horror movies come and meet and greet and get autographs and stuff like that. Uh, that was when it really hit home that there was truly a cult building up about Halloween three. Yeah. Now uh, you also, not only did you work on the first Halloween, you played Michael Myers in the, in the closet scene. Uh, how did that come about? Well, you know, to, let me, let me clarify. I didn't play Michael Myers ever. I simply, when it was necessary, put on the costume and put on the mask and performed certain tasks that it was better that I performed because I was head of the art department. So it was always when it was going to interact with the set. If something needed to be broken into, any door that's getting broken into, the car window getting smashed, anything that the shape is doing where he's busting the set, that was me because, uh, A, we needed it on take one, and I knew best where to hit it to make it be good on take one. And, B, Nick Castle, who did uh, the lion's share of the shape work, you know what I'm talking about when I say shape, right? Yeah. yeah. Nobody, nobody on the set or in the script or anywhere called him Michael Myers. That was mm-hmm. the character that was revealed under the mask, but the script calls him the shape consistently mm-hmm. anyway any shape work that was interacting with the set was me so that puts me in i don't know half a dozen scenes or something like that so i didn't play the part i simply that night it was time to bust up the closet and nick had had a full day already and so i think we sent him home and i put on the outfit and the mask and I knew where to hit it to make it be right on take one. And that's the story of how that, how that came to be. Yeah. Were you surprised how uh, big Halloween became when it was released? Well, of course, remember that when it was released, it, it took a while for it to build up. It wasn't just a big smash hit overnight. It, mm-hmm. some, some time went by. 
But uh, yes and no. I was not surprised that it was a popular movie. That I pretty well knew, as did everybody else involved in the film, that we had made a good movie, that it held up, and that if, you know, if audiences just happened to like the character, Jamie Lee and the other babysitters, Nancy Loomis, now Nancy Kyes, and PJ Souls, if they liked them or drawn to them and the other supporting actors, and uh, if they were frightened by the shape, and we knew damn well they would be just based on when we auditioned two masks in pre-production, we knew damn well without even a script that was for some magical reason, that was a terrifying look. That mask was terrifying. Mm-hmm. So we, there was no surprise in it being popular, that it, attracting audiences. Mm-hmm. To go beyond that and say that we knew it was going to turn out to be the phenomenon that it has turned out to be, that's crazy. Nobody knew that. One yeah. could not have predicted that. Mm-hmm. I think we said there, too, which I always think separates it from a lot of uh, the slashers that came after, is you really cared about uh, all the characters, as opposed to a lot of yeah. the ones after that, where it was you kind of just kind of watched to, to see how the killer killed people. Right. Body count movies, slasher movies. Yeah. And there were, man, there were a ton of imitations. The idea of the mask, I mean, Jason... <laughs> and the uh, hockey mask, how original. Uh-huh. And, uh, what I always love about the original Halloween is Loomis, because I think uh, Dr. Loomis uh, really sells all the, the horror there uh, without even really having to, to show a lot with, with uh, the shape, with Myers. You know, just this guy that well, was uh, dedicated to science, and then he eventually just, you know, realizes he's evil. We're just we're talking about a really good actor in Donald Pleasance. Oh yeah, John John had wanted to get a, one of the one of the big uh, horror icons from an earlier era, uh, Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing, because that would have been kind of campy, you know, to have that kind of actor reappearing in a whole new incarnation. Uh, but that was not to be. Uh, but I think in finding Donald, a good thing happened because it, it became, there was no reference. There was no insider's reference. It was just a really good actor coming in and giving a, a excellent performance, really focused and intense. And it was just what the doctor ordered. It, it was kind of, I think, uh, it was kind of a blessing in the end that it wasn't one of the uh, one of the sort of horror heroes from an earlier era mm-hmm. playing that part. So, yeah. So, uh, how did you get involved with uh, with it, Stephen King's It? That really just came in the front door. A uh, very conventional way of things happening in Hollywood. Uh, I believe my agent called me and someone was talking about uh, the possibility of me directing this mini series and they sent the script over and I was knocked out by uh, it came. It was in two parts. It was a two night mini series. And uh, I read the first night was totally knocked out by it and picked up the phone and said, yeah, let me add it. 
And so I uh, went in, had a meeting with the producers. And um, I think maybe Larry Cohen was in on that first meeting too, the writer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess they liked whatever it was I had to say about it at that point because they hired me shortly mm-hmm. after that. Oh. Interestingly enough, the uh, producers then left the show and I got uh, a new set of producers. And that was a blessing, too, because the new guys, uh, a company called Green Epstein, which was uh, my contact with them, uh, was uh, Mark Pacino and uh, I want to say Richard Green. That's not right. Jim Green. Uh they were great, and uh, I worked with them again. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was pretty conventional uh, getting on board and, and getting to work. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. Was, I just wonder if you had a lot of interaction with uh, Larry Cohen, because I just watched his documentary recently, and I grew up watching his movies, and uh, he just seems like a real character in the documentary. Uh, Larry and I... Uh, I I I felt that his night one was uh, really really beautifully done. Uh, he picked up on the phenomenon that a a movie of the week, a so-called two-hour movie of the week, was divided into seven acts, and lo and behold, in the uh, it novel, uh, there are seven young characters. Uh, And so he devoted an act to each character, which was just really a a fine stroke uh, and made for just an especially compelling way of telling that story. Night number two, I thought was kind of a a train wreck that it's such a big novel and he'd done such a masterful job of adapting that novel to night number one. But in night number two, it, it seemed as though he just sort of gave up on trying to do what the book was doing at all and just foreshortened it and condensed it to a point that it wasn't even recognizable as far as I was concerned in the way it came out. So I did, uh, uh, invited him to come to Vancouver and help me work on night number two. He wasn't inclined to do so. And so I was stuck with doing a rewrite myself. Um, And uh, I didn't feel great about that, but I also feel like that uh, he kind of let the show down in the 11th hour. I didn't like the way he uh, handled himself in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I rewrote him on night number two. And I, I don't think it's as good as night one, but it's okay. You know, it, it, it at least tells the Reader's Digest version of the novel. And of yeah. that, I, uh, I'm very proud. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anything uh, that you had to change uh, since it was a, a TV miniseries? Um, even though it is pretty graphic, I think, for a TV miniseries, a lot of blood and stuff in it. But was there anything that you, 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 you couldn't do? Uh, that you wanted to do. I didn't uh, no so the simple answer is absolutely no there were things in the book there were so many things in the book that couldn't possibly sure. make it into uh not even 4 hours of filmmaking 
you know, yeah. four TV hours of filmmaking isn't really that. It's like, you know, you take out, uh, let's see, it's about 43 minutes per hour of actual content. So we didn't have much time to tell such an epic story. So it was bare bones. And the things that got left out, it's, I, I don't miss them. And I certainly didn't lobby for anything to be included that mm. uh, had been in the book that I thought deserved to be in the movie. Uh, one thing that uh, could come up as a question is the, uh, in the book, the, the lucky seven club mm. consists of one girl and six boys and Stephen King decided that after they'd gone through this big adventure, it would be a cool <laughs> thing for all the boys to have uh, sex with, yeah. with Beverly. And yeah, I thought very... that was a, I thought that was a misstep. I thought he crossed the line, and I would right. even if I'd been been like really forced to, I wouldn't have put it in the movie. Yeah, I agree with you. When you read that, because I read the the novels, uh, it's fantastic. Is it's, it's one of the scariest novels but when you get to that part it's almost like you're you think you're going to go on like some list or something for for reading for like wow well, what's going on here it's like really no you know, just, in detail it, it was i'll just be kind of joking there but it's 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 really it's weird compared to the rest of the novel i guess well, let me say that i think stephen king is one of the great american uh, authors he's just and sometimes underappreciated because I think his great strength, frankly, is not so much. Everybody pigeonholes him as the master of horror and this and that. And, oh, it's so scary. But, frankly, I think that his true gift is the telling of the rights of childhood and mm -hmm. the magic of childhood and the mysteries and the terrors of childhood. I really think that's where his greatest gifts lie. And I just felt like, you know, I'm sure that he, you know, saw that opportunity and gave it a try and kept it in. But I think it was a misstep. And if, mm -hmm. had I read his original manuscript, I would have said, Steve, take it out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that that's a big part of a lot of uh, Stephen King's uh, stories are about childhood. And I always think he must have had a really bad uh a bully at some point because there's a really you know vicious bullies in a lot of his stories absolutely and you know it's a funny thing it the subtext that's never spelled out uh in it and this clown that victimizes children is about child molesting that's really what's going on there uh if you read under the you, you know between mm -hmm. the 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 lines. And so it seems so ironic that he would have his children, you know, uh, the, the boys do the girl. It's just like, mm -hmm. what? Wait a minute. The whole book is about the horrors of child molesting. What are you doing? Dunderhead. Yeah. So, uh, how much, how hands on you when are, are you when you're, when they cast it? Oh, I was, I was, I was there for all of that. Uh, the first we, the, it was the star casting, the TV casting of the stars from television, the, the adults, in other words. Uh, and that was done mostly in Los Angeles. And it was done mostly over the phone because 
you know, when somebody says, I think we might be able to get Tim Curry, well, you don't have to. I mean, if you know his body of work, you don't have to have an audition and you don't have to wander around worrying about it. You just go, oh, fuck yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Let's have Tim. Uh, and if if the deal is worked out as it was, then you're you're going. You're you're happening. The idea that uh, you know people like Harry Anderson and and uh, John Ritter and Richard Thomas and the other guys, uh, it just became a sort of a star-studded cast before we even got off the phone. Uh, then we went up to Vancouver and cast. Uh, the secondary parts and the children up there. And yes, I was in on every second of all that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people always say, you know, uh, child actors can be hard to work with, but I think, uh, I wasn't there, but uh, when I watch it, the children actors, I think, uh, are just great, great in, uh, in it. Well, I'm proud of their performances. It didn't come easily because if you think about it, usually, that meant we had seven to 10 kids on set uh, doing these scenes. And it was pretty hard to, to keep just to sort of keep order so that we could get the scene shot. Cause it was so yeah. full of energy and rambunctious and uh, you know, testing the boundaries constantly. None of that mattered because when the camera turned on, these kids just were great. And I think the best thing about it were there were a couple of more seasoned pros. I'm thinking of Jonathan Brandis and I'm thinking of, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name. He played Richie, uh, Seth Green. Yeah. Uh, and they really knew their way around a movie set and yet they hadn't developed rotten kid habits you know you can have a kid who's done so much commercials and so many commercials and so much television that they've mm -hmm. developed sort of automatic cuteness and and adorability and that can get to be really phony none of that was present in these kids and they were all enthusiastic and it was it was really hard work to pull it together but so much fun and they i'm so proud of the way they did it we had a, a boot camp for the adult and the children actors. We shot the kids first, as I recall, but we, uh, we got the adults up there for like a three-day get-together so that the adult actor and the kid actor could develop a sameness about their movements mm. and about the just in simple ways, like Jonathan Brandis putting his hand up to his face uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, Richard Thomas doing that same gesture or, uh, the kid who played Stan tugging on his ear and, and so forth. You know, it, it was, uh, it, it was a, a very deliberate movement to get everybody on the same page and boy, did it pay dividends. I feel like, you know, I, I admire a lot of different movies featuring uh, two different actors at two different times in their lives. And I don't know of any circumstance that's any better at that than what we achieved in it. 
where I totally believe that those kids grew up to be those adults. Yeah. And I think that's part of the power of that movie. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. And uh, I think for the story, uh, the young Stanley kind of has to really sell the, like the, the terror for the second half of the, the story to work. If that makes yeah. sense. And that's, sure. I don't know. Was that something uh, you talked with him about uh, the young actor or something? Maybe you just thought about when you're directing it. Uh, I think that would be more something to think about uh, behind the scenes because uh-huh. all I wanted, uh, no boy, I'm blanking on his name. Young Stan. Uh, ben Heller. No, that was it. Yeah. I thought Ben Heller played. Uh, well, okay. If you yeah. say so. <laughs> uh anyway no he was he was a splendid kid and i didn't want to burden him with too much meaning i just wanted him to be truthful in the moment and really when it came time to convey the fear the the trauma that he went through to just be real with that and not worry too much about anything else mm-hmm. uh, uh when when you read the book uh, i always think kind of uh, the end's almost unfilmable, like what uh, Pennywise is, because it's you know whatever's serious <laughs> oh, to you. So uh, yeah, uh, I, there there was I I spent about in in readapting Larry's Night Number Two mm-hmm. uh, for the for filming. I spent about three minutes wondering about the battle in the sort of the inner universe and this turtle and all this stuff that it was uh-huh. like i think i could have tackled that if we'd had like six nights uh-huh. you know and all the money and budget in the whole wide world but <laughs> right. on a two-night miniseries it was like oh man they, we just can't go near that it's too metaphysical it's it's too obscure it would mm-hmm. take a lot more time to set the background and really get that going in order for that to work. Uh, so, you know, that that's one of the things that was left behind and there was just no way to bring it forward. Yeah. So um, what was the decision to have it like a, like a, a spider creature? Well, it's in the book. It, to me, it really wasn't any more complicated than that. It's in the book. Okay. Uh, you're kind of damned if you do and you don't and damned if you yeah, don't because I when, I, when I read when I read the book and I got to that part I went that's it it's a spider <laughs> even a giant spider it's still like that's it yeah. really? that's it and yeah that's what the book says now can I improve upon that by just leaving that part out no I'm I'm damned if I do that because Mm-hmm. people who love the book say, wait a minute, where's the spider? Uh, <laughs> right. But if you put it in, then everybody has the reaction probably that I had when I read the book, which is that's it. What? Really? <laughs> uh, so it's, I think it's a built in flaw and uh, I decided to just go with it and be faithful as I could to the book. Mm-hmm. Now, um, have you seen the remake or the, the new version, whatever they want to call it? I, I have not. I do have it right next to my uh, video player, and I simply haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, I uh, I really like it, but it's very odd that they left out like a a huge uh, theme of the movie or the, the story. 
is uh, there's no there's nothing about their imagination in the new movie. Uh, you know, there's no, oh, really? nothing about nothing about the bike or like the acid. You know, it sprays the acid. So I, I don't know why that was left out. But if you haven't seen it, really can't talk to you about it. But because I, I don't know that uh, I don't know how you finish the, the second part of the movie or or I don't even see understand the point of taking it out. It's a to well, me it's the, a real uh, part I, of, the, I, of the story. As far as I know, they they've only gone halfway. Mm-hmm. They dealt with the children's story. Uh, did they have any adult any of the adult stuff? No, in? nothing of the adult. Right, so that's the, uh, that's yet to that's yet to come. Mm-hmm. So I I doubt if they're going to go back and readdress the you know the belief systems that yeah, made them made them think they could kill the beast with some silver you know or whatever. Yeah, all that stuff. It's just a aesthetic choice. Uh, I, I I can't really comment. At least sure. until I do see the movie. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you got to remember. I uh, people ask me this all the time about remakes. Did I see Rob mm-hmm. Zombie's Halloween? Did I see The Fog? What did I think? And uh-huh. unless I was involved as a consultant or something, sure. Think about it. Other than idle curiosity, why would I care that much? <laughs> right. I mean, I agree with you. Yeah. It's like I. I, I did my movie and I'm I wished them well. I hope they did it well. I hope it all went fine and that they got what they wanted. But I, I don't really care that much, really. Uh, <laughs> sure. I, I don't see why I should. Yeah, I got you. Uh, I'm still going to ask about one other thing though, because it's not necessarily a remake or a sequel. But did you see Tales of Halloween? Because there's a story in it where it's almost like a prequel to Halloween Three. Because uh, really? at the very yeah, it's I it's, I I love the movie. It's an anthology. This is a movie uh, called movie. Tales of Tales of Halloween. Yeah, it came out uh, just a couple years ago. It's one of my favorite movies set in Halloween. It's an anthology story. I'm, it's all yeah. a lot of different uh, directors involved. I really like yeah. it. But the very last one, you should you should. Well, I think you'd like it. It's a nice homage to Halloween Three. And it kind oh, of ties that's in. nice. I, I I hadn't heard anything about it. I missed it some way. Huh. Yeah, definitely check that out. Now, uh, I got sure. a lot of questions here from uh, from Facebook that people sent in. Mind if I ask some of them? Go ahead. Uh, Tommy Kovac wants to know, why did Aloha Summer get shelled for four years? It's a great movie. Oh, thank you. That's really nice to hear. Uh, that's a movie where the producer was kind of his own worst enemy. He had a wonderful story to tell. It's kind of a love letter to Hawaii, the year it became a state, 1959. And the movie takes place on and around Oahu and the beaches of Waikiki, uh, involving six young men, uh, two Howleys, that is to say two uh, white guys from the mainland, one rich, one not so rich, two native Hawaiians uh, and two uh, young men of uh, Japanese heritage, one very traditional and one modern and uh, kind of with it. And it's a a coming of age story of the six of them. And it's most of all just a love letter to Hawaii uh, and to a, a kind of a, a remembrance 
of a time in the producer's life when many of these events happened to him. Uh, I was a, it really captured me because I loved the music of the era, and he did too. And so we had the chance to make a really uh, wonderful movie. I'm going to say it's probably about oh, 70% of a good movie. It has some flaws. And the problem with the producer was he'd never made a movie before, and he didn't really understand the difference between his remembrance and the fact that when you go out to make a movie, you make the movie three times. You make the movie when it's written, you make it again when it's shot, and you make it again when you're in the editing room. And he just couldn't let go of whatever his his in his mind's eye the memory of of those halcyon days and as a result he got in his own way quite a bit and i think that hampered the movie i don't know why it was pulled except that uh it, it you know the fact that it's out there at all i think is kind of a miracle because uh he wound up owing everybody, including me, a whole ton of money, and there were lawsuits and all sorts of complications. And uh, it's it's uh, if you watch it, it's it's worth watching. It's got enough goodness in it that it's it's really a worthy subject to check out. But it's one of those for me that was just oh, if if we could have gone ahead, if I could have gone ahead and gone right through and followed it right to the end it would have been a better movie but the the guy in truly in charge didn't know how to let go that kind of power and trust his director and as a result i think it's kind of flawed check that out does that Uh, answer the question i can't remember can't quite remember the question (laughs) (laughs) no i think it went above above and beyond uh emma dark who's uh uh, independent director wants to know um, were there other actors who uh, wanted to that were in talks to play Pennywise and ultimately why did you choose Tim Curry who of course went on to be absolutely iconic I think that before I appeared on the scene I think there had been other actors names being tossed around and uh, I have heard that they were thinking about Malcolm McDowell and I also think they were talking about Roddy McDowell, whom I eventually worked with on Fright Night Part Two, both of whom would have been pretty damn good, I think. Both are fine yeah. actors. Uh, but the first name I heard uh, in a serious discussion was Tim Curry's. And for me, it ended right there. I didn't need to go any farther. I thought that he just in my gut, I thought, yes, that's a great choice. That's a brilliant choice. Let's go get him. Mm-hmm. It was that simple. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Gill and Alexander McNamara have a similar question. Uh, what was it like working with composer Richard Bellis on it? Amazing score. Richard uh, was splendid and well-prepared. And I think he took uh I believe I gave him a note about Bernard Herman and he took that and ran a kind of crossbreeding some Bernard Herman like ideas with the idea of your, your clown and circus and calliope music sort of stuff. He did a brilliant job. I was 
underwhelmed at first, but I was wrong about that. I hope Richard has heard that. I think I told him that. I I, I wasn't just gung-ho about the music in the beginning, but it clearly worked, and Richard, in the end, uh, received an Emmy for it. So, uh, you know, he he did he didn't need my approval. He got the the approval from the Academy. Uh, so yeah, and he he made my job pretty simple. You know, I we spotted together, and I told him where I thought music should go, and he told me where he thought music should go, and it was a pretty simple process, as I recall. There wasn't a lot of sturm and drang about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Alexander McNamara's question is actually about Halloween three. He's just why is Halloween three's theme so awesome? <laughs> Why is it so awesome? Right. Because everybody involved in the movie uh, was was and is an awesome person. That's the mm-hmm. only way I can think of to answer that question. I uh, got one more here. Uh, we got a lot more, but uh, a lot of them we covered. Matthew Fisher wants to know uh, how much of a hassle was it working with the fog in the fog as an editor with keeping up with continuity uh continuity and he said uh, from continuity continuity there we go uh from scene to scene uh well did you say matthew fisher yeah matthew fisher is he still playing organ with procol harem that's what <laughs> i want to know uh it was a big uh it was a big pain in the ass it was very challenging and very hard to manage the fog we used uh, onset uh, dry ice fog when we could confine it because uh, it, it looked so utterly cool. It was the best looking fog of all the dry ice stuff because it would, it would just sort of creep around. And if you, if you were in a house or something, that was the ideal situation for it. Uh, and then there was the outdoor fog that came out of these machines we called spoofers that were, uh, or, or no honkers. The, the big machines were honkers, uh, that made this loud, obnoxious noise and really put out a lot of fog, but it would blow away quickly. Uh, when you were outside, if there was the slightest breeze, it was the toughest stuff to work with. And then of course we did several miniatures, uh, under real controlled conditions where we shot plates of various things like the beach. Uh, we shot Stinson's beach for the fog coming in and kind of invading the entire area. Uh, and then went back into the, uh, into the studio and built sets out of all black material so that it represented the beach and the flatness of the beach and the mountains surrounding the beach built all that up so that the fog behaved as if it was going up around the mountains and stuff, and then took that piece of film and married it to the plate optically to get the fog. Very rudimentary uh, optical tricks. Uh, but And we did some in reverse uh, where you could shoot the fog uh, uh, coming, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd shoot the fog coming at you but then if the story needed the fog to recede, then you, you put it in reverse. Uh, so it was a whole bunch of different things that uh, we put together. And yes, continuity was an issue. It was very, very tough. 
Uh, of course, Brandy Crane, uh, young Ben Hanscom says hello. Oh, great, great. Hi back to him. I hope he's having a good life. I do too. And uh, so uh, before I let you go, uh, can you tell us uh, what you're up to? Do you have anything, uh, you're working on anything? Yeah. Well, please watch for one formerly called Helliversity, now mm-hmm. called The Gate. It's a it's an eerie story about a uh, a reanimated evil sheriff from the Jim Crow era uh, on a college campus down south, a predominantly black college campus. And Thanksgiving weekend, when almost everyone goes home and the place is deserted, and uh, this this campus young white campus cop is possessed by this evil spirit of a Jim Crow sheriff and goes on a rampage and a precious few students who are left behind for Thanksgiving have to band together for their survival. That's uh, I think we have found financing for that and maybe we'll go into production this winter on that one. Another one that uh, my partner and I are working on right now is called Scary Land, and that's a story of a bunch of high school seniors who uh, decide to do a haunted house for a project, fundraising project, and um, it turns out that uh, there's something incredibly wrong with the house they pick, and so all hell breaks loose and uh, havoc ensues. Uh, I'd like to mention two more, if I may. Oh, yeah. The, the uh, w- one of my a project really dear to my heart is <laughs> one that's appropriate for a late night, demented, twisted TV show, <laughs> right. TV Sounds series like called, <laughs> called Midnight Motel. And it's basically about uh, a little motel in Los Angeles after a whole bunch of bad shit goes down in that fair city such as endless fires, mudslides, rainstorms and flooding, and finally the big earthquake. And then after that, a suitcase nuke in John Wayne Airport. So it sounds grim, but in fact, this is staged as a black comedy. And it mostly involves the lives of the people in the motel and not so much the disasters all around them. It's about sort of everyday people banding together to try to get through and have some semblance of life as people come and go, you know, it's a motel. So you got your people mostly going out like refugees and people coming in like carpet baggers. Uh, and then you've got the motel staff, which we focus on as kind of our, our weekly family. Uh, so that's, that's a really fun one. And I think, it's time may have come. I wrote, I started that 10 years ago and everybody said, Oh, it's such a bummer. People just want to slip their wrists. And I just kept saying, this is reality. Don't you get it? This is really happening. Yeah. Uh, now I think I'm being borne out, especially by fire right now. And that's season one is fire. It's all about the uh-huh. fires. Yeah. Uh, and finally, last but not least is a non-horror project, uh, a novella that I've written called One Christmas Eve, which is a completely different thing altogether. But it's about a, a young, disillusioned, bitter young man who's, whose marriage has just broken up. 
And on Christmas Eve, he uh, discovers a nasty old street bum, skinny as a rail and crazy long white hair. And uh, they get together for uh, unlikely circumstances and spend Christmas Eve together. Uh, and it's uh, ultimately a real feel-good tale, but it's disguised as a real craggy street drama. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. And that's it. And and about the this, this series, uh, uh, nowadays there's so many, I think it's a great time for, for uh, series anyways, so many great TV shows, I think. But uh, there's so many places for them, too. You know, you've got... Obviously, the cable and, and basic cable. Oh yeah, and all the and yeah. all the streaming services like Hulu and Netflix, and uh, so there's yeah. a lot of places. The things have things have loosened up a lot, and I intend for this to not be a show that's so much about spectacular special effects and all that crap, and more, a lot more about what's going on in this motel with all that other stuff is just sort of a background that they all take for granted. They're not constantly going, oh, my God, the fire's coming, the fire's coming. It's more like, hey, if if we can put together a carload of people, if we can put together a car, if we can, if we, you know, the, the idea is not terror about the fire or the floods or the mudslides no. or any of that. That's just kind of now background. We're... You sh- shrug about it and you try to go and instead... You want to go get an ice cream cone or go get a pizza or maybe go across town to get some insulin for the kid who's dying in the parking lot. Stuff like that that's just real local. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the backdrop's the backdrop. Yeah. That sounds very cool. Well, I appreciate uh, you talking to me. I had a great time. Well, me too. I enjoyed it. And uh, I can't wait to, to hear how all this comes out. Excellent. And uh, when new stuff comes out, or if you want to talk about some other stuff, I'd love to have you back on. All right, Neil. Uh, It's been a pleasure. It's almost 